Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, August 26th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. This is kind of an interesting um, day at Community Broadcasters. We will have a um, a a company-wide outing. Am I right? Yes, um, you're correct. You uh, got your you're rocking your Braves gear today. Yeah, I dressed a little casual today. The Braves didn't. I mean, you basically wearing a Braves uniform, which looks a little nerdy. But anyway, you're cute. <laughs> well, no. I, you're I cute a, wearing I, the Braves shirt. I have a the Braves sock. Let me see the uh, no Braves sock. No Braves yeah. socks. Um, but Braves shirt, Brave hat. Um, notice it's a World Series. I didn't see that from the computer shirt. screen. It is a World oh, yeah. Series. Um, Frio, anything to add to the uh, to the Braves since you guys are the third leg in this stool, being the Phillies. <laughs> It's kind of a Mets Braves race with the Phillies lingering somewhere in the back. No. Okay. Good deal. Good <laughs> deal. Nothing to add here. Eight four three six six one. I guess the Mets must 0-9-3-7. have won yesterday because we're two games back. Okay. The Mets did win yesterday. the The Braves played Wednesday and the Mets didn't. The Braves. The Mets played yesterday and the Braves didn't. Braves win. Mets win. So um, we go into the weekend with the Braves down two games. Um, both on track to win a hundred baseball games. That's pretty wild. I mean, both, you know, I, I, I dropped by a gentleman's business yesterday to inquire about his services, and he had Braves paraphernalia and memorabilia everywhere. You know where I went. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy's golf cart uh, to see yeah. about getting some things done to my golf cart. And um, it was like walking into the, I don't know, the Hall of Fame wing of Truist Park. <laughs> I mean, it was. It, you know, it's got old, it's got Bob Horner and Dale Murphy. Because there's nobody else from that era that anybody remembers, right. Horner and Murphy. Quick on nugget of information on Bob Horner. The the first professional baseball player, I think, to never play a game in the minor leagues. Think of that. I didn't know that. Horner leaves Arizona State, goes straight to the major leagues. Never played a minor league baseball game. Now, I don't know if he went back. He may have got reassigned after the fact. Uh, it's weird why I know this. Horner was on the Arizona State team that beat the Gamecocks. In the College World Series, that had Mookie Wilson. Remember, Mookie Wilson was on that Gamecock baseball team. You're kind of laughing now because, like, okay, here we go down, uh, strolling down memory way lane. Back. Yeah, way back in the day. Um, yeah, Mookie was on the um, great Met player, uh, Mookie Wilson. I think his number's retired with the New York Mets. I know he's in the Mets Hall of Fame. Um, leadoff hitter uh, from Bamberg Earhart, South Carolina. Uh, actually played against Mookie's brother, Philip Wilson. Um, Real quick Mookie Wilson story. You ready? I don't know how we end up here, but a real quick Mookie Wilson story. Okay. So Mookie retires from the Mets and moves to the beach, somewhere down around um, Garden City, Surfside, somewhere that area, um, and started playing in a men's senior baseball tournament, 35 and over. Um, and I got a buddy of mine who played a lot of football with me in school, good baseball player, and uh, played shortstop, real athletic. He'll get a little older, but he's still athletic. Um, he's playing shortstop. Uh, he says, hey, here comes a, a black guy batting left-handed, you know, leading off the game. Hits me kind of a ground ball, routine ground ball to shortstop. I field it, look up, and he's on first. <laughs> and I'm like, let's go, you know, what, what, what happened here? Uh, you know, he said he, he gets to second base, and hit the first pitch he steals second. And I, and I start looking, and I'm going like, that might be Mookie Wilson. <laughs> Surely they're not letting him play this league with us. <laughs> a former major leaguer, a former all-star in the major leagues. But he said all Mookie did was just kind of slap it to one side of the infield, and nobody could throw him out. And it's a little bit like, um, it's a little bit like, would you let Larry Bird play in a church league? No matter how old he was, would you let Michael Jordan play in a church league? No, you can't let those guys play 
in a church league. Yeah, not um, a fair game. Yeah, it's just not a fair game at all. But anyway, um, the Braves play the Cardinals this weekend, and the Mets play. I don't know who they play this weekend. Colorado, maybe? Is it Colorado? Okay, because the Braves play Braves play Colorado next. Uh, yeah. the beginning of next week, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, we're in a pennant race. Uh, we're heading towards September. College football will be front and center beginning next weekend. I think there's a pretty good game Thursday night that kicks off the season, and then it's in full swing. I think the Gamecocks and Tigers both play um, opening weekend. Oregon and Georgia is kind of an interesting game. One of these um, West Coast, East Coast kind of affairs. Big 12, excuse me, the uh, the Pac-12 and the SEC will be um, on center stage and a couple of other decent games. I don't know why I think Florida State may play somebody. Um, Gamecock fans need Florida State to be better than they are. I mean, really and truly, I mean, Gamecock fans need for Florida State to make the right hire and and get the right coach and rebuild that program to be competitive against Clemson because right now Clemson's just light years uh, better than anybody else in their, really in their league. I mean, I I guess there are a couple of teams out there that could at times challenge, but um, Florida State was the team that gave Clemson, you know, the, the, I don't know the run for their money, but, um, you know, Dabo's just built a machine. I mean, give him a lot of credit. The guy's built a machine. Um in the way that he wanted to build it. You know, this is hard for me to admit, but the one thing I like about Dabo is his ability to get things done the way he wants to get things done while everybody else is declaring him him a fool and a moron and not knowing what he's doing. And the joke ends up being, it's a little like Trump running for president. He's out there winning championships. Dabo coaching football in the early days, not now, and he's established himself now as one of the elite coaches in this generation of college football winning two national championships. If you win multiple national championships, I mean, you're elite. I'm not saying anybody can stumble on one. I wish that was the case. Um, it's hard to stumble <laughs> on one football national championship. Stumble on one. But, I mean, but when you do two. I mean, right. when Ray won two baseball championships, that solidifies your place in the elite standings of whatever profession. And Dabo, well, I mean, you know, let's think of this. Ray's won two. Dabo won two. But more importantly, Don Staley's won two in women's basketball, and that is the the wave of the future. I mean, we know women's basketball. <laughs> uh, Freehold was talking yesterday about the uh, the ESPN app forces you down the road of the WNBA. You know, you could honestly argue, and I don't know if this is something to be complimented by or not. I'm probably bothered more by it than I am uh, to be congratulated. But the best athlete ever at South Carolina could have been a woman's basketball player. That uh, What was her name? Asia, Asia Wilson? Wilson? Yeah, I mean, you know. In her sport, she may have been better than any Gamecock ever has been in his sport. I mean, Rodgers won the Heisman, and they had some good baseball players, you know, but but nah, Asia Wilson in her sport may have been better than anybody to ever have played their sport at the University of South Carolina. Um, and, you know, what, what do you want to say, Freehold? You want to jump in here? Well, I was going to ask you, who do you consider the greatest South Carolina football player? Because I, obviously I think people think of Jadavian Clowney but as an Eagles fan growing up, I used to watch Deuce Staley. I love Deuce Staley. Deuce was a great yeah. player. And, and is he still a coach at uh, Philadelphia? No, he left because they snubbed him as as head coach. He felt he should be considered as the head coach, and they didn't consider him. Deuce has made a good name for himself in the NFL. I mean, he's been a positions coach, been a coordinator for a year or two. But you're right. The Philly, I mean, the Eagles hired someone other than Deuce. He felt snubbed and uh, and left. But, but uh, George won the Heisman. George won the Heisman, but that's kind of an interesting. You know, in the nine o'clock hour, and and we talked about this early this week. We're thinking about the last hour of the week being a no politics hour of radio, uh, kind of an unwinding of the, of the week. May talk Gamecock Tiger football. That's kind of an interesting. I mean, I, I guess I'm as 
I'm not as, as, as knowledgeable a Gamecock fan as there is, but I'm fairly knowledgeable. Clowney's the most talented player to ever go to Columbia. I mean, no doubt. I mean, he was the freak. Uh, you're not in your head. I mean, even from afar. Uh, when you watch Clowney play, you knew something different about him. I mean, he didn't look like the rest of them. He didn't, you know, even in a uniform, even at the NFL level. I mean, when they break the huddle, you got, okay, there, there's the um, there's the Terminator. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that, that guy doesn't look like everybody else. I mean, he looks a little bit different. I mean, he looked a lot different in college. You get in the NFL, you're, you're with the best of the best, and you kind of seem to blend in. Um, but Freehold, he was the most talented player, but he was not the most dominant player. I mean, he, you're right. I mean, Clowney, from a, from a I don't know, a metrics and measures perspective, yeah. I mean, he, he was the best athlete South Carolina's ever had on the football field. To to, to uh, Rev's point, George won the Heisman, but I still think the greatest Gamecock ever, Sterling Sharp. I mean, I still think his career at South Carolina, what he accomplished. Uh, if you look at Sterling's career, the better, the bigger the game, the better the opponent, the better Sterling played at Nebraska, you know, um, at Georgia. I mean, some of those games that South Carolina was inferior. I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, the other team had better talent from top to bottom. Sterling stood out. And it was almost like, hey, let's just get the ball in Sterling's hands. I mean, that's our best chance to try and win this game. So, yeah, I mean, the, the I think Sterling's the best Gamecock I've ever seen because, once again, I'm not saying single-handedly, but, but he, he was the player that you knew if he had the ball gave you a fighting chance to beat Nebraska in Nebraska. Back when Nebraska was on steroids and good. You know, I mean, when they started outlawing steroids, and we thought they were grain-fed. You know what I mean? Those big grain-fed white boys from Nebraska. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. It wasn't just grain. <laughs> there was a lot of juice going in with that with that grain. Um, you know, this we could do this next week. The Mount Rushmore of Clemson football and the Mount Rushmore of Gamecock football. I mean, I can't – I mean, obviously, I think the two recent quarterbacks, you know, you got Jeff Davis, you got – uh, Steve Fuller, you got, I mean, there are a lot of great players at Clemson. Many, many, many great players at Clemson. Um, I don't know how you have a Mount Rushmore without these two quarterbacks. Deshaun, Deshaun and, and Trevor, Trevor Lawrence. I mean, I, I just don't. Now, once again, a Clemson fan would know a lot more about that than I do. Um, but I don't know how you, I mean, South Carolina would be Sterling and George. I mean, they'd be Elvis and the Beatles, you know, and then we could argue about who else comes along. Uh, the guy that never gets mentioned but deserves a lot of credit, Connor Shaw. I mean, he just won. You know, I don't know how he won. Yeah, never but he lost just, a game at he just, home. He just kept winning football games. But as a, as a yeah, that, that could be an interesting and fun experiment as we head into college football um, next weekend. But but once again, as a non-Clemson fan, maybe I'm missing something here because um, I've been following the Tigers for a long, long. I've been losing to the Tigers most of my most of my life, other than the Spurrier years. Um, you'd have to have those two quarterbacks, wouldn't you, Rev? I mean, I they each so. won a national championship, right? I mean, they, they each were first-round draft choices. Trevor Lawrence was the first pick in the draft. He and Clowney, you know, in, in uh, not back-to-back years, but in, uh, in a period of, what, six or eight years, Clowney goes first, and then Trevor Lawrence goes first. And Deshaun Watson, um, you know, I want to say this. There are Gamecock fans, and I see this on Facebook, and I've actually had, you know, some text sent to me, kind of kind of taking a little joy in, in Deshaun Watson's transgressions. I'm not one of those. I'm telling you, man. Um, when I was young and single and didn't know any better, I took a little joy in my opponent having issues like that. I don't anymore. I mean, I just don't. I got kids. I got friends who have kids. You know, we've all been skinned up by the real world. We've all done stupid things and have family members do stupid things, get caught in places you can't imagine they would ever get caught. So I don't take any joy at all 
in watching Deshaun Watson struggle. There's some Gamecock fans that do stop. I mean, you know, there's got to be a line to the saying somewhere when humanity prevails. So I don't take any joy at all in watching Deshaun Watson struggle and his family struggle with what they have had to struggle with. Now, I mean, once again, if he did it, he's got to pay the price. And I think the NFL is making him pay the price and society will make him pay the price. I think it's wallet took a big hit. I'm not, I'm not excusing what he did. I'm just not celebrating by any stretch of the imagination. And if you're a fan base of a team, your crowd will do something stupid. Give them long enough. That's why I've been real hesitant to you know, kind of jump on or pile on the, you know, look at what that crowd's doing. Look at what three of their players did. Okay. Just, just give your team long enough. They're, they're 18 year old full of testosterone. Um, take a drink at five points. The next thing you know, you're, um, in the crosshairs. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the phone. Billy in Florence. Hello, Billy. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Again, Billy. Again, you missed one of the great ones. Uh, a guy, a quarterback who never lost to Clemson, Connor Shaw. Give yep. his body and soul to the team. Never lost to Clemson all, his whole time playing. So, uh, want to make sure y'all remember old Connor Shaw. Thank you, man. It's easy to forget him because he's forgettable. I mean, he's not one of these physical specimens. <laughs> that doesn't sound very I nice. I mean, Clowney did three things a game that you were like, holy crap. <laughs> did he just jump over those six people? Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm saying. I yeah. mean, Clowney left an impression. But, but I mean, Connor just won. Connor just, I mean, yeah, he was just out there doing his thing and winning football games and not impressing anybody. It's a little bit like Greg Maddox. Think of Greg Maddox. So Maddox pitches a game, and you're watching the game, and he's not overpowering anybody. I mean, he's not blowing anybody away. He's not doing anything to really impress you. But you look at your watch, it's 930, you're in the seventh inning, and it's two to nothing. And the other team has two hits. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're going, to, how can this be? How can this guy throw 84 miles an hour? He's 165 pounds. Everybody in that era is on steroids. And we're in the seventh inning, and he's thrown 70 pitches, and it's two to nothing. I mean, Maddox was Connor Shaw. Connor Shaw was Greg Maddox. Um, Clemson's had players like that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, without question, Connor Shaw is the guy that will never get the credit he deserves because he just not he didn't leave that impression. He was just he was the drummer back there somewhere doing what it was he did. But if the drummer got drunk and didn't show up, the band sucks. You know, they really suck. And um, and Connor Shaw was that guy that just you know just as steady steady as they come. I, I'd love to do this in the nine o'clock hour. Let, let's let's kind of head that way, Rev. The nine o'clock hour we said is going to be the um the no politics hour. I can hear people now saying, "Well, the seven o'clock hour is because yeah, the no, yeah, the no almost, politics hour." The last hour, we're, we're almost heading, the first hour. We're heading into the first break here. Um, Mount Rushmore of Gamecock football. Mount Rushmore of Clemson football. We're at the doorsteps. I mean, next Friday is football season eve, so to speak. If you're a Gamecock or a Tiger, or you've got Tiger or Gamecock, people always say, "I can say the Gamecocks first. Uh, I don't. I try to say the Tigers <laughs> first. The, the Carolina Clemson game. Why is it not the Clemson-Carolina game? <laughs> it's alphabetical. Well, it, it is. I mean, it is the Clemson-Carolina game. It's the Carolina-Clemson game and the Clemson-Carolina game. When I ran for office, I was real careful about that. I mean, I had orange and purple stickers. I had garnet and black stickers. And um, and God bless the Beasley family. They, they were real supportive of my campaign. And they're big, big, big Clemson fans. And um, I would leave Columbia uh, at halftime and go to Clemson. And they would welcome me with open arms. And I, I learned uh, during my political life, um, you better not, if you're in politics, you better not alienate one fan, one fan base or the other. You can be a fan, but you better respect uh, and revere the mutual fan bases. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll take a break. 
back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Nobody on the phone, so let's delve into the, to the issue at hand. Um, I put something on Facebook yesterday that a lot of you, and I understand this, a lot of you like to put on Facebook where you are, where you've been, where you're going, what you're doing, what you've done, what you're about to do. I've never been that excited about what I'm doing or where I am. Occasionally what you're eating. Yeah, yeah. So, so I just complain about the world around me. If I find something wrong with the Rev, I let the world know what's wrong mm-hmm. with the Rev. Freehold, yeah, you'll, be a, you'll be a subject here before long. Um, in other words, I just whine and complain about the world around me, and it's cathartic. I mean, it really is. It helps me sort through uh, whatever issue it is. It's a little bit therapeutic and venting for me. But I put something on Facebook yesterday that tried to center around not not who are we mad at, but who's to blame. Very often we get mad with people and, and bothered by situations without slowing down to wonder, okay, how did we get here? Now, you and I have, um, with the help of our listeners and callers, have kind of, um, ah, let me back up. I have. No, nobody, I mean, maybe you agree, maybe you don't agree, but I've kind of traced this thing back to Griggs versus Duke Power and this policy within the company, a rule within the company, that for you to be promoted within, you had to pass an intelligence test. And the 1964 civil rights legislation uh, made that illegal. You can't do that anymore. You can't say um, somebody sweeping the floor who wants to um, you know, run a big machine or a big piece of equipment, you can't give them an intelligence test because 1964 civil rights legislation, the court in 71 deemed that uh, discriminatory. Um, so, so I believe that that opened the door for another set of qualifications. In other words, what is the qualifying criteria now for me to hire somebody to do a job that, that is a little above sweeping the floor. It requires a little aptitude, a little um, competence, a little uh, a little better than average ability. I mean, I know that's a little offensive to some, but I mean, in some jobs, it does require a little better than average ability. Um, out of that came kind of a, I don't know, rever run, a run in higher education that led to um, increase in cost and uh, a lot of other things that are associated. I mean, yesterday, uh, for hyperbolic, uh, I, I kind of added the higher education cartel because that cartel word's kind of a provocative word. I did it on purpose, but, um, but I tried to, instead of saying, Hey, I'm really angry and here's what we should do. Let's fight. Let's figure out how we got here and who's to blame. I mean, if we've got nearly $2 trillion in student debt, 40 some odd percent of which is a default deferment or some delayed payment program. And now we're forgiving, you know, somewhere between 500 billion and a trillion dollars of student debt. Um, how in the world did we get here? I mean, how did we make this fatal a mistake that led to this place? And and a lot of folks are mad at the borrower, and they're not innocent. I mean, the word I used yesterday is culpability. I mean, that, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, I don't care how old you are, if you enter to an egregious or um, you know ridiculous financial agreement, you still got some culpability there. You're not innocent. You did do that. You're 18 or 19 or 20. You don't know what you're signing, and I get that. And I'm going to tell you this. If somebody had given me an opportunity at 18 years old to sign a document that provided easy credit and financing for me to leave home, um, get up and go to bed when I wanted to, you know, fi- find a club or a girl and do what I wanted to uh, on somebody else's dime, I would have probably taken them up on that. I mean, that's just human nature. Um, that There are some young people more mature than others. Um, I'd like to have it a good time. So at 18, if you'd given me that opportunity, I would have signed and, and said, where is the money? You know, show me the money. Um, 
pay it back. I mean, how, here, let, let me explain to you before you you take you run out of here how you pay it back. Oh no, <laughs> we'll figure that out down the road. I mean, that that's the nature of eighteen year olds, and I think we're naive if we don't believe that that's the case. Now, once again, that kid is not innocent. There is some culpability. He's not a total victim in this game, but he's been taken advantage of, or she's been taken advantage of. Um, and, you know, so, so you leave there, you've got partial responsibility, some culpability, you leave there and go to higher education, what I call the cartel of higher education. When the Greeks case came down and higher education kind of um, took it upon themselves to be the, um, the benchmark for whether somebody can do this job or not, education became um, administratively bloated. Um, it became... Uh, when it became the, the ticket to success, the ticket got more expensive. There you go. I mean, when education, when we began like to perceive it. higher education as the ticket to success, it became a valuable commodity, and it got real expensive. And people played that game. And all of a sudden, at some point in time, the federal government said, hey, um, the more people that graduate from college, the better nation we have. And they began backstopping some of this student debt. Maybe it was um, of good intent. May I don't know how malicious or nefarious. I don't, I don't have any idea what the intent was to begin with. And all I'm doing is speculating here. But at some point in time, the government said, let's guarantee this debt. These kids going to college, um, they don't have the money. The banks won't lend them the money. Um, it's a risky proposition for a financial institution in its normal state to give money to a kid to go get a degree uh, that he may or may not attain. It may pay off. It may not pay off. And the government said, okay, in the name of the public interest, the public good, and the betterment of our population, let's backstop this debt. And to the tune of about 90%, they backstopped the debt. Well, that removed any reason to be efficient or accountable or responsible. I mean, it, it insulated that entire dynamic from the market. And the next thing you know, um, college tuition goes up to 313%. College enrollment goes up, you know, 85%. I think today in America, 43% of all 18 to 20-year-olds are in or have gone to some level of college. I mean, that's up from, what, 27 or 26 or 7%. So we've gone from about a quarter to nearly a half. I mean, it's not quite a half yet, but it's getting real close. I mean, it's getting very close to one half of all high school students, 18 to 24-year-olds, going to, to some form of college. And, it, it, I mean, we rung the bell on, on inflation. I mean, we just did. We inflated the price of, the, uh, of the price of going to college because, once again, the government became the enabler, the subsidizer of all of this. Uh, I said yesterday, I'll say again, the average college in America today has added 2.5 non-instructional administrators for every single student. The absurdity of that, but the reality of it is they could afford it. I mean, college got so expensive. Um, colleges in America today average. I read two reports. One says 31, one says 40, but somewhere in excess of 30 personnel work at every university in America on inclusion and diversity. They're non-instructional. They're just there to kind of make sure the um, – now, the federal government's passed down a lot of laws and a lot of regulations, a lot of stipulations, a lot of bookkeeping that goes along with this. Um, the Harvard endowment has $60 billion. The Yale endowment has $60 billion. But Joe Biden, the day before yesterday, 
forced a welder from Pamplico to help pay off the student debt of a recent graduate from Harvard Law. I mean, the, the, that, that's insidious. I mean, that's just, there's something morally and ethically wrong about that. So if the, if the kid is the, um, the third to blame, the, the, the system of higher education is the second to blame, um, guess who I'm pointing the finger at? The federal government. For enabling this debt to be created, for, for allowing a, a, an average student from an average school to go get a half-baked degree at a half-ass university on mining your dime. But there, there's something insidious about that. That's the only word I can come up with. So I'm blaming the federal government for creating a program that, that allowed any exposure at all to you and I and people that didn't go to college. 60% of America didn't go to college. They're 100% responsible, 100 responsible for the student debt. Now, I've heard all these comparisons to PPP and, you know, the bailout, the TARP and General Motors and all these other. I'm not, con- I'm not condoning that. I mean, I never would. I think the PPP is complicated. I think when the government shuts your business down, the government has a responsibility to financially compensate you. I mean, you didn't lose customers. The government said you can't run your business. I think the government, when they do that, when government order and edict says to a business owner, you can't open that business or you're going to jail. I mean, to believe they don't owe you something in return for that, I mean, that, that's a pretty bizarre argument to make, but I heard it made on social media. Uh, you know, the PPP, how many people have had PPP plans and programs and loans forgiven? I mean, but that was, a, that was an impetus of the government created that. So I think, you know, I think we got a couple of callers yesterday that said, you know, I don't know who I blame in all this. Well, I tried to find, I think the, the, the student's culpable to some degree. You still signed the contract. You didn't know any better, and I accept that, but you still signed the contract. There's consequences to not knowing what you're doing. I mean, I've done things like that before in my life. The higher, the higher education cartel has to be addressed. We, we've got to reform, radically reform the system of higher education in America. The first thing we need to do is end, abolish the federally subsidized student loan program. That has to happen for us to get this train back on the track. Will fewer kids go to college? Yes. Will some colleges be forced to close? Probably. Will kids have to drive a little further to get a good college education? Maybe. But we've got to allow some of these market forces to come back into play to get this train back on the track. We're bailing out about, you know, somewhere between $500 billion and a trillion dollars of student debt, but we're doing nothing to address the fundamental problem. I mean, they, we'll borrow that much money in another three or four years. It'll be back at $1.7 trillion, and somebody else will want somebody else to pay for, for the student debt. So, so, you know, we can be mad at who we choose to be mad with. We can blame who we choose to blame. The federal government is the reason we've got $2 trillion of student debt and tuition is dollars $50,000 $50, a semester. It's not worth it. Anytime the government intervenes, quality goes down, expense goes up. And education is too important for the government to monkey around with and cause this much problems with. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Morning, guys. And... You know, I've said it before. You guys have said it. You just said it. Joe, I heard Joe say it the other day. Every time the government gets involved with something, it always gets worse. Never better. Never, ever, ever. And it's not just this, okay? We got a lot of trains on the wrong tracks, Ken. You, you got this one. Another big elephant in the room is uh, health care. 
Another big elephant in the room is the housing market and the government. And it's obvious their, their, their whole plan is to make people reliant upon government, to make it so people don't even, they, they can't even get up and pick their nose before they go into the bathroom to do whatever they do in the morning without wondering, hmm, how's the government going to help me with this? And it's all, it's, it's and I don't know what, obviously, what the the uh, uh, the answers are. I mean, the first. Yes, you do, Dale. Yes, you do. The, the answer is limited government. You know what the answer is. Well, it's limited government. To say, but but it's got to start at the voting booth, and that's why I'm always talking elections. You got to vote. You got to get out there, and because that, and in the primaries, that is the most important place where we can make a difference is in our primary elections getting our cats and can you said it the other day that are going to do what they say that that, that they were going to do and, and then we've got to hold them accountable there has to be some kind of mechanism and and this is just the latest thing you know i paid for my daughter's education my grandfather helped me out some with that with, with, with a nice inheritance um so many people have done it the right way. You look at what's going on at the border. It's all the same thing. You talk to somebody who immigrated into this country the right way, and they are the most incensed about what's going on down at the border. It's just it's one thing after another, after another, after another. And until we start standing up, and, and, and Ken, you've said this before, until we're ready to, to, to fight the Democrats the way they want to fight, and Breeze has said it, and Joe has said it, and we've all said it, until we're ready to get down and dirty and do something and, and, and send a dollar to a campaign, volunteer to go knock on some doors, until we're ready to get out there and do that, the Democrats have been whipping our ass at that. You guys have a good weekend. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Take a call. We'll go to the break after, um, after we take this call. Steve in Hartsville. Morning, Steve. Want to tell you a story that happened in Florence probably about six years ago. Um, it's all said and done, so I can kind of talk about it now. We had a guy um, homeless on the street, carried a cart. In the cart, he had like recording studio stuff he purchased, like mics and turntables and recording stuff in general. Um, he purchased it all with um, student loan. He also purchased a pair of ordinance 45, stainless. So this guy's homeless, had a student loan he applied for, got. Had a 45 and all this turntable stuff. Gets in an altercation at a club, ends up shooting a guy. Um, did not finish the guy off because he hit the mag release and it didn't feed another round in the chamber. Otherwise, he would have killed the man. Um, goes to court, and I was part of it, but seriously, he was certifiably crazy. I mean, he was. And he ended up getting like 10 years, like a mental prison and all this. But all this took place because the government gave him, it was a little over 5000 less than 10000 and it just kind of shows you just how lucrative the whole system is and how they just throw money out to anybody that throws an application. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I heard yesterday from someone in the legal system, very credible source, it is not unusual for someone to pay child support with student loans. Hmm. Somebody in the family court system told me yesterday, it is not, I mean, they don't want to go on the record. They would never go on the record, and I'll never divulge who their, who their names are. But, but they said that it's not very uncommon. But they do some of the investigative work necessary to find out what's do, who's doing what or why they're doing it. Um, they have found on multiple occasions someone using student loans to pay um, child support.
That's bizarre to me. But that's what, guys, when the government, when the government begins taking control of whatever it is, the market forces just don't exist any longer. It's kind of a free-for-all. It's, it's the wild, wild west. Um, you do with it what you want to do with it. You, you're not answerable. You're not accountable. I mean, I, you know, it's just bizarre to me that people can defend this model. Once again, I'm not, I mean, I, I get the debate about who's to blame. I mean, I do. I understand. Is it the kid? Is it the higher education system? Is it the government? I mean, I've told you where I stand. I think the kid is least to blame. I think higher education is far more to blame than the kid. But I think the government ultimately is the the crux of the problem um, because they've enabled this system to exist. The higher education system doesn't have its own money. The kid obviously doesn't have its own money. But the federal government has a printing press and, and the, the ability to fund that program with whatever amount of money they choose appropriate. And, I mean, we're drunk with it. And you're hearing stories. I mean, these are anecdotal stories, but they're not that uncommon. And I love to hear these people to get on Facebook or, or Twitter and say, you know, well, I mean, it's all about the kid getting an education. Okay, you stay that naive. I mean, that's foolish to believe that people aren't taking this money and doing something other than um, go to college. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Al in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um, appreciate that Beamer interview the other morning. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Um, just following up on what Dale said, basically, you know, we got to go vote and change, you know, all this stuff, this atrocity, what we call the Biden administration. But uh, how can you do that? I'm sure you've heard now about, you know, Joe Rogan's interview with Zuckerberg and, uh, you know, suppressing the Biden Hunter story and, uh, you know, <clears throat> Facebook suppressing it. Uh, I just, you know, what do you do with our so-called justice system when they're just nothing but hacks for the left? And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that somehow we can resolve this. But uh, like I said, I don't see how, you know, you used to be able to say elections, but, you know, I don't know if you can say that anymore. But anyways, uh Thank you, gentlemen. Let me give you a weird analogy. Talking about baseball, we talked a lot about the Braves recently because they're defending world champions and, and having a good run. And they're a Southern team that, you know, a lot of our listeners have rallied around in sports and their sports uh, interest. Home run hitters strike out a lot. I mean, that's just the nature of the business. I mean, if you're a home run hitter, you're probably going to be first or second. I think Babe Ruth has more strikeouts than anybody in the history of Major League Baseball. But he was, I mean, just, you know, Henry Aaron's the home run king. I don't mean Barry Bonds in because Barry Bonds cheated. And you can't have a cheater as the all-time home run king in um, in baseball. I mean, everybody did it, but, you know, Lance Armstrong got punished when everybody was doing it. Barry Bonds gets punished despite everybody doing it. But hold on to that analogy. Guys, we're not asking for a subtle change. That's what we've got to accept about what we're a part of. Donald Trump is not, uh, you know, someone who's going to nip around the edges or be subtle about changing the government. We're asking for a lot. We're a home run hitter. We're going to strike out a lot. They're going to forcefully defend their territory. They're not going to just say kind of give in and, okay, they want a little bit of change. We are asking for a radical reform of our federal government. That's a big ask. They're going to resist that with everything they have to expect or believe that asking for radical reform to Washington was not going to be met with an equal and opposite resistance was a bit naive. And I'd like to say I told you so, but I don't want to be that guy. 
But there were several times six years ago when Trump came on the scene that I remember saying, this isn't going to be easy. I mean, if you elect Donald Trump, that's the beginning. I mean, that's not the culmination. That's not the uh, end. That's the, the kind of the beginning of the end of the, the establishment's regime and the and the globalist world order. Kind of goes back to what Steve Bannon said. Sure. I mean, if you think they're going to give you your country back that easily, when they have this much at risk, we're asking for radical reform. We are swinging for the fences. We are a home run hitter. We're not trying to hit a single backside to start an inning. We're looking for the grand slam. And they're going to defend their territory. If we were asking for nuanced changes or a little bit of a, a tweak here or a tweak there, you wouldn't see the resistance you do because Republicans historically have asked for that. Mitt Romney wanted a little bit of this. George W. Bush wanted a little bit of that. We want it all. We want our government back in the hands of people who it belonged to. And the people that have control of your government are not going to willingly and obligingly give you that government back. So that's where we are. And we've got to make our minds up that we're going to dig in and win this for the long haul. To expect Trump winning in 16 and five years later, you know, here we all often running into this new world, you know, this new right leading uh, the, 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 no, I mean, that, that's just, to me, that's insanity. We had to expect this sort of resistance. We had to expect this sort of grind. We had to expect some setbacks. But it's a battle. And it's not moderation. It's not the right. This is a, a game. There'll be a winner and a loser. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. A couple of callers are there. Let's be respectful of their time and go to the phone. Michael and Florence, good morning. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning. I, uh, you know, talking about having to radically change the government. I, I ran across this uh, clip a couple of days ago. It was an old uh, Johnny Carson clip, and he was interviewing, and he introduced him as former Governor Reagan. And uh, and he apparently hadn't announced he was running for president or anything, but uh, Johnny Carson asked him. He said, what would you do if you were president? And he started talking about all of these federal agencies. He says, you have all these people, he says, and they pass regulations. He says, if you break a law you're innocent until proven guilty but when you break a regulation you're guilty and uh you know i thought i mean so to me it, it, i mean that's the swamp the swamp isn't the people we elect it's, it's all these uh bureaucrats and everything that are in place i mean like the uh you know we got the fbi now manipulating um manipulating everything is to uh you know, like uh, Peter Strzok saying, well, we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to let Trump win the presidency. And uh, we, we need to dial down these, these agencies. And in fact, we didn't have, have an FBI when this country was founded. And, uh, I mean, somebody made the obvious comparison uh, yesterday between the, uh, you know, the Gestapo and uh, Nazi Germany, the uh, federal police. So... Thank you, Michael. Anyway. Appreciate it. Well, the, the scary part of the, the Joe Rogan, and I want to spend more time on this. I'm going to go back and I mean, the reason I'm not trying to rush into this today is I want to better understand the context, uh, the 10 minutes before, the 10 minutes after. I want to give Rogan and Zuckerberg uh, the benefit of the doubt. 
Zuckerberg is on Rogan's podcast. And listen, guys, more people will hear Jeff Zuckerberg or Mark Zuckerberg on that podcast than they will on CNN or Fox News or anywhere anywhere else. Um, and Rogan's not a political activist. I mean, Rogan's not a conservative. He's a Bernie Sanders supporter, but he's somebody who allows free-flowing discussions on his podcast. And he's amassed a huge audience because they have these different conversations about different things in American culture, society. I mean, he'll have, uh, you know, a, a Navy SEAL who runs 100-mile extreme races one day, and he'll have the president of a major corporation the next day, and he'll have a conservative candidate for the Senate the following day. I mean, he kind of welcomes and embraces a lot of different personalities and perspectives. But during the interview with Zuckerberg, the 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 founder of Facebook said that they took a little different tack than Twitter. In other words, the FBI came to, and I'm like, whoa, do what? Because look, guys, you can like what Zuckerberg did. You can like the way Facebook is run. It's his business. It's a private sector enterprise. I mean, they shouldn't be in the business of censorship because they profess to be a social medium, a social medium platform of which you can express yourself however you choose to be, as long as it's not personal, you know, and violent or encouraging violence. I mean, I understand some of the community standards. I think we all do. Um, you don't let people get on there and incite violence. I think that's, uh, that's like yelling fire to theater. Uh, the First Amendment does have limitations. I- I'll agree to that. But But Zuckerberg made it sound like the FBI came to them and said, hey, we're expecting a lot of Russian disinformation. Now, here's the fundamental question that nobody answered. The FBI expects a lot of misinformation to be a part of the 2020 campaign. We need you to be on the lookout. Did they or did they not include the Hunter Biden um, laptop story as part of that perceived Russia disinformation? I mean, that's that's critical to me, and I want to find out more. Zuckerberg, he, he kind of took a pass on that. I mean, he didn't say. He told about as much as his lawyers allowed him to tell. But, but the fundamental question is, did the FBI say this Hunter Biden laptop story is Russian disinformation, therefore don't allow it? Now, he admitted, I mean, Twitter didn't allow it to be shared. I mean, Twitter shut it down. It's not going to be on our media platform. Zuckerberg didn't do that. And he professes or confesses that we took a little different strategy. We allowed it to exist, but our algorithmic methods um, forced it down in the um, and, and they got a priority list. I mean, I've told you this before. The feeds, if it forced way down. Well, I mean, if, a lot if of people I, didn't see it. If I ask a question, was Donald Trump a good president? I mean, I can I can Google that question. Was Donald Trump a good president? The first hundred stories are going to be twenty from CNN, thirty from the New York Times, fifteen from the Washington Post, five from Salon.com, and six or seven from you know um, Joe Scarborough Central. And and somewhere in the 15th or 16th page, you'll find, you know, something from Fox News or something from the National Review or something from the American Conservative. That's what Google does, that they skew the algorithms to force you to read about 100 opinions. And if you're somebody who's a bit politically, uh, I don't want to say uh, naive, but you just don't keep up with it like the, uh, a lot of other Americans do, you, you read the first 100 stories, well, Trump must have sucked. I mean, you know, uh, imagine this. Imagine the 2020 election comes along and you've been watching Seinfeld. And you've been watching the Gamecocks and Tigers play football. And you Google, was Donald Trump a good president or not? And the first hundred articles say, no, he was not. I mean, what, what are you compelled to do when you go vote? I mean, you feel like it's your civic duty to go cast a ballot. You go to the poll based on, I mean, Trump's not a good president because all these, all these people can't be wrong. 
I mean, there's no way they can be wrong. Well, Zuckerberg admits that that's what Facebook did with the Hunter Biden story. They buried it. I mean, At the request sure. of the FBI. Well, I mean, that, that, that's what we wonder. Right. Well, they, they buried. Is that not what he what said? I mean, no, or he, there he some didn't say that. He, he said okay. we buried the Hunter Biden story because. Now, now here's the point that, that nobody knows the answer to. Did the FBI say or not that the Hunter Biden story is Russian disinformation? I mean, the Facebook content moderators said it was. But did the FBI? Uh, you see where I'm headed? Yeah, I, yeah I mean, the, because the, what, what Zuckerberg said, they said was, we suspect that there is some Russia disinformation attempts coming. Did the Keep FBI say, out. and as part of that, there's this Hunter Biden laptop story? Or did, we don't know. Or did Facebook, he didn't say. Or did Facebook take that? and make their own judgment that the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russia disinformation. That's the he question. That a little ambiguous. Well, I mean, it's still out of bounds for the FBI to do that. I mean, that's still, that, 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 mm-hmm. is, I mean, right. that is beneath the pale. That's concerning, alarming, disturbing. I mean, there are a lot of words there. But if the FBI told people at, at Facebook, hey, we want you to be real careful about this Russia disinformation, and there's going to be this story about Hunter Biden's laptop, shut that down. I mean, shut that down. That That is... That is one of the most egregious judgments that any law enforcement agency within the federal government has made in my lifetime. And I can't speak to what am some I of naive, the others did. Am I naive, or was that not Trump's FBI? Sure it was. Well, it's never been Trump's FBI. I mean, it's the cathedral. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the deep state. It's those folks who believe that they are entitled to decide who your president is. Because they're in Washington. They I run see. the government. They know better than you do. And when you make a judgment contrary to theirs— they're going to teach you a lesson and not ever do that again. But but to your point, we're on the 10-yard line. We just hadn't scored the touchdown yet. The touchdown is if we find out. And Zuckerberg got real um, ambiguous about that because Rogan said, so the, did they tell you? And he's like, well, I mean, I don't remember. I mean, I don't remember. And, and of course he remembers. I mean, Zuckerberg's like Tom Brady. I didn't know how much air was in the football. Okay. Um, you know how many fat grams are in three and a half ounces of salmon? You know how many ounces of salmon you ate in 2017? Stop telling me you don't know how much air is in the football. I mean, you got caught. You got your, you know, you got your, your wrist slapped and you moved on. Um, Zuckerberg impresses me to be that kind of guy. I mean, whatever happens at Facebook is because Mark Zuckerberg wanted it to happen at Facebook. So did the FBI whisper in his ear, hey, this Hunter Biden laptop story could affect the outcome of the election and we need this thing to be buried? I mean, I think it happened. I mean, I'm convinced that's exactly what happened. But you got to be careful about what you can and cannot prove. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Morning, guys. Yeah, the government presidents have used the FBI and the so, uh, taxation since they were incepted to go against their opponents. I mean, that's a fact of life. Just like one of the laws of economics is when you subsidize something, you get more of it. When you tax something, you get less of it. I mean, look at just this last bill that came out, the uh, Reducing Inflation Act. What's the first thing the car makers did on these uh, electric vehicles? Ford just raised the price of their Mustang E, $8,500, $8,100. They raised the price of the Lightning seventy-five to eight hundred eight thousand dollars. I mean, you can't get ahead. 
the thing that concerns me if they can, you know, if they can just write off ten thousand dollars in student loans, why why not write it all off? Because they're trying to go to a digital dollar. Bert talked about this the other day. That that's an agenda. 2030. They want a one-world one government, and what they're going to eventually do, and, and we got to stop this, but I'll guarantee you, it, it's going to take us over 50 years if we were to pay an extra trillion dollars on our debt, with, the, with along with the debt service. It'll take over 50 years just to pay what we owe now. Right now, there's about $18 trillion sitting in 401Ks. So just like they did with Social Security, they're liable to go in and say, well, we'll, we'll take all of this money and, and we'll protect it for you. And they'll do it just like they did Social Security, put it in a 2% fund and spend it. Um, another thing I'm concerned about is the voting. You know, Biden has charged every cabinet that he's got with with ways to give out the vote. That's gone under the radar, but that's an executive order he signed the week after he was elected. So all of these cabinets, all of these departments, they're all, you know, it's, it's worse than Zuckerbucks. They're using my bucks to get out the vote for Democrats. So that's something we got to keep an eye on. And Trump, Trump is not anything different. We we were looking for Trump since Reagan. I mean, Trump's just the face of the movement. The American people has been in this place forever, but now Biden calls us all fascists. So I guess I'll be a fascist for a while. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. 843-661-0937 is our number. Did Rogan ask Zuckerberg about Zuckerbucks and... See, that's what, I, that's what I want to talk a whole lot about yeah. it today. I want to dedicate a good bit of the show. Money. I'd like I'll, to know. I'll take some over the weekend. Um, you know, I'll um, I'll <laughs> I'll have some Rogan, some Dylan, and some Grey Goose over the weekend, oh and I'll contemplate, and, and I'll consider. In that I, order? Yeah. You know, I, it, it'll be a mixed bag there. <laughs> I mean, it'll be a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of the other. I try to get my wife to sit on the porch. She said, I will if you turn that stupid music off. <laughs> a lot of people feel that way. Mm-hmm. It's not stupid music. It's literary. Right? I mean, it's Nobel Prize winning literary. <laughs> it's, it's, Am I right? Yeah. I mean, am I being dishonest? Uh, well, Literally. I mean, I'm talking about... I, I, it's more literary than it is music. Okay. I'll say that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> mind-boggling is what it is. And disturbing to some degree. <laughs> hey, we're going to take a break. Come back after the break. Got a city council member, the captain of... Uh, a captain with the Florence City Police Department about a um, an issue... That is front and center. Back in a minute. You know, the reason we're the epitome of mediocrity is we don't plan for anything. But there's a little beauty in not planning for anything. You can add lib, and when someone texts you early in the morning and says, hey, man, I've got an issue I want to give the show and talk about, you can say, well, I mean, we don't have anything planned, so come on. You know, we're just making it up as we go. So um, so you're certainly welcome. And we're so good we make it sound planned. Well, I mean, yeah, we do. We actually gave the wrong, we gave an award one time to the wrong man. That there was two people named the same thing. Wrong dude shows up, and uh, nobody ever knows yeah. it until we kind of admitted uh, that we gave the award to the wrong man, but they had the same name. Anyway, uh, Brian Braddock reached out to me this morning. Brian's a member of Florence City Council and said, hey, man, there's a Facebook issue out there that I want a chance to clarify to a lot of your listenership. But once again, Brian, and, um, and I'll let him introduce his guest here in a second. Um, we talk a lot about people are so committed 
to what they believe in right now. I mean, it's a very passionate, intense period in American politics. You know, people blame Trump. I think Trump is the manifestation of where we're headed anyway. Tr- Trump's kind of the culmination of all this well, the energy. Pre- the president on- of the United States yesterday said he doesn't respect MAGA Republicans. Just yeah. doesn't respect And so, you know, here, here we are in, you've got your side, I've got mine. I don't believe in anything you stand for. Anyway, Brian, Brian reached out this morning, and I, you know, I find Brian to be genuine, sincere, uh, in caring about his community, the people he represents, trying to make our community a better place. You reached out about this concern you have over the interpretation of a certain Facebook post. So the floor is yours, Councilman. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you again for uh, calling an audible and allowing me to come on and bring on my guest, uh, uh, Captain with the Florence City Police. I, you know, I woke up, I had a, um, a message. I woke up at 4.30 this morning, and I got a message from a friend that says, have you seen the ridiculous woke post by the Florence Police Department blaming the victims? Read the comments. You know, so I went on there and uh, and I looked through. I looked through all the comments, and I could see where he was coming from. And my initial thought was, you know, I know that this was not the message that was intended. And and as you know, Facebook is not a good platform. It's a good platform for um, successfully telling someone when an event is and what location. But if you want to convey anything that has emotion and passion and, and genuineness behind it, Facebook is not the place. You know, so uh, so I immediately uh, reached out to the city manager, chief of police, and, and to you because I knew that uh, if there's an issue, the quicker the response, the more personal personal the response, you know, um, the sooner we can get it right and we can get corrected and the right message can get out there. So, um, you know, w- we did a lot of moving and shaking, but I've got Captain Mike Brandt here this morning with me. Um, Captain Brandt's been on the police force, you said 24 years. 24 years. 24 years. Yes. And um, I knew, I, I know this guy, I know this guy's heart. And when he saw that seven guns um, were stolen and that they were going to go on the street and he's been on the other side of that, I knew that there was a lot of heart and emotion in this post and, and that he wasn't trying to blame or shame. He was trying to encourage, and, and really it was a plea plea for, for assistance, for help. And that's what we've got to do. I've got some thoughts on on how we do that after afterward after captain brant speaks but enough is enough we're going to have to collectively citizens police city local government churches we have a crime problem in florence south carolina uh, i saw an article we're 27th in the nation i'm riding back um from a fishing trip yesterday with joey mcmillan local realtor call comes in I recognize the area code 815. It was Rockford, Illinois. I used to live there for five years. Number nine in the top 10 violent crime in the nation. She's calling and she says, hey, I'm concerned. I'm pulling up all this data on crime rates and and I'm concerned about Florence. You know, maybe we need to look at Camden, Sumter, you know, somewhere else. And uh, man, Joey's like, I got a city council person with me right here, right now. And, you know, I try to convey, you know, that this is, you know, 40 bad actors, and, and this is a lot of interstate stuff and whatnot. But truth is, people are looking to move into South Carolina and our community, and and this was a real-life situation. So um, off of that, I want Captain Brandt to really be able to articulate, you know, his, his heart and sincerity behind um, this post. Captain, yep. good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning, sir. So people perceive and interpret things a certain way. <laughs> uh, the spoken word is, as Brian, you know this, some of the, yes, the written word, there's no inflection. 
There's no cadence. It's flat. There's, there, yes. you're, you're right. And I, I've made big mistakes sending things out over those sorts of forums. But it is a way to communicate with people. Um, but, but once again, the spoken word is uh, a more sincere effort of relaying exactly what the point you were trying to make is. Yeah. I'm, I'm so much better in the communication between individuals than I am in the, in the spoken word. Sure. I, most of the time, I am very uh, – uh, I mull over what I want to put out when I represent the uh, men and women that work at the Florence Police Department, when I represent the chief, when I represent council and the, the citizens of Florence. When I, and last night, I overstepped in my response. But it was, if I had been having a conversation, we could have teased out my intention of let's grow from this misfortune of these folks and make sure. I, I want to stop you there, if you okay. don't mind. For you to be in a position of influence and power and admit that you may have made a mistake is a positive step. Because so many people in your position would refuse to admit that they wish this thing had ended up a little bit differently. So I want to personally commend you because I think that's the first way to get to a better place when someone admits that I may should have said that a little bit differently than I did. No doubling, no tripling, no quadrupling down. So personally, as someone who has been in office, thank you for the willingness to do that. It's not I, but Christ within me. Well, you know, that's, fair enough. Um, apart from that, I I would be the same man. I would be the one that's doubling down um, and if I was on the other side, I'd probably be the one that would want me tarred and feathered and ridden out on a rail. Um, our intention is to bring this to the forefront of people's thought and think more than just 30 seconds ahead, more than just the next the, a six-inch bubble around you. We want to think about the next step. Okay, I carry a firearm. What, what would I do? What situations would I use that in? And then if I used it, what's next? Or if I don't use it or I can't take it somewhere, how do I secure that appropriately? Because there are people with bad intentions out there that, who are looking to get one over on Let, Let's go back a half step. Okay. So, so, so the, 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 the Florence City Police Department had a post where seven cars were broken into, seven weapons were stolen. Your intent was to encourage people to better secure those weapons. Some people had interpreted it as um, you're blaming them for being responsible for an eventual crime for the crime committed against them. Is that a fair articulation of their interpretation? I can see how people would interpret that way. But I, I, our post, our intention, my post, my intention, was to bring to light that a plastic box is not all that secure. You know, some people do not have not had the opportunity for that thought to be processed. You know, they've never been put in this situation before. Seven people have. These seven people, and many more throughout the city and, and throughout the county. There, that was just a snapshot of some of the things that, that occur. And as hard as our folks work, they're too few and they're too far between. We've got a lot of territory to cover in the city and the county. Um, we can't be at every every place at all times to protect everything. Um, so we want to work with our community. We want people to call in when they see something that's going, that hits them in the gut and says, hmm, that looks funny. We're the guys that you call. You know, not go, please don't go to Facebook. Please don't message us. Call 911. 
because the po- I'm the public information officer. Most of the time when I'm getting these messages, I'm in Clarendon County. I'm at the house. <laughs> sure. So I don't want there to be that much lag time because our officers are already behind the curve being in, in other places giving services, and every second counts. Just like with a heart attack or a stroke, every second counts. So our heart is to help people learn from this mistake, not to rub it in somebody's face. Sure. That wasn't my intention. So so the story is, I, mean, I guess what you're encouraging people, and Brian, you could jump yeah. in here. Mm-hmm. What you're encouraging people is, I mean, obviously you have a right to keep and bear arms. I mean, the right. Second Amendment grants you and guarantees and, you that right. And we want to protect sure. that. And, and I, but, yeah. but along with that comes the responsibility of understanding that there's a criminal element out there that may or may not believe you have a gun in a glove box. Um, you're asking people, I don't put words in your mouth, but you're asking the people to um to understand that because you are a are, are, are a law-abiding guns right gun owner some aren't some understand that breaking that window breaking into that glove box gaining control of that weapon gives them the ability to shirt responsibility from an eventual crime is that is that a fair interpretation that's a that's a fair interpretation I, we want folks to take the steps on their own that that help us preserve our right to bear arms. So there's no more erosions of that right by additional laws being put into place that with some encouragement, some education, we can help people see, hey, the world we live in is a rough place. Bad things are going to happen. This is how we can do it a little bit better next time. Would you like people to take, I mean, what recommendation would you make? Take the gun inside with you? Find some sort of um, more secure safe in your vehicle, bolt to the floor or something. I mean, what what are the options or alternatives? If I'm a, if I'm carrying a weapon, and, and I'm a you know a CWP owner or a CWP holder, and I've got a right to carry that weapon, and I leave it in the center console, unlocked in my car at night. Mm. I mean, that, to, to me, I'm, I mean, I, I, I might be shirking some of my responsibilities. Once again, I understand it's not my. I didn't break the law because somebody else broke the law and, and came into my house or came into my car and broke. Mm-hmm. But there is a certain there's another degree of responsibility that goes along with that. Is the argument you're making. So so if we don't want them leaving the weapon unattended in the glove box of a car, in the center console of a car, what do we want them to do? Well, planning forethought. You know, where am I going? What am I going to have to do? What are some of the options? You know, that's that's some of the things. And and I realize, I'm, I'm starting to realize as, as a police officer of 24 years, I think fundamentally different than most people because uh, of the security issues that I face carrying a gun or having had interactions that I've had over those 24 years. So, and that's one of my errors in that, in that reply is I was thinking too much like a cop and not like the regular citizen. I was not, I was not focused on how it might be received. Sure. And that was my error. I, mm-hmm. I'll own that one. That you, was not the chief. You weren't talking to a million police officers. You're talking to million exactly. normal, regular citizens. And that's Fair where I, that was my mistake. Fair enough. Yes. And, and let me, uh, let me think as an individual reading it, you know, I was talking to my wife this morning. She's like, you're, you're revved up way too early in the morning. <laughs> um, but you know, when, when you read that, we've heard the story of, you know, if a, if a young lady, you know, goes into a bar at 2 AM with a miniskirt, you know, and she's raped, you know, people will, will blame the young lady. Well, I mean, it's, it's not her fault, you know, that, that someone per- perpetrated that violent crime on her. But her daddy would say, honey, please don't go to a bar at 2 a.m. along with a miniskirt. Don't put yourself in that position. Right. Yeah. So, you know, he- here's the reality. Captain Captain Brandt knows 
he ho- he knows the whole equation. He knows that those cars were targeted because criminals know that cars have guns that they can access. He knows that those guns are going to be stolen. They're going to be um, sold. They're going to get in the hands of people that are going to commit violent crime. He knows the whole playbook. You know what I mean? And so to say, hey, you're going to a restaurant, take the gun out of the glove compartment, put it in your pocketbook in the trunk, you know, hey, let's just do that. You know what I mean? That, that's just that's just thinking it all the way out. If you can't take it in, you know, lock it in, put it in the trunk. But this, like I said, this wasn't the platform. But what I also want to say is I ran a campaign to fight crime, you know, that crime was an issue. And, and it's it's time. I've talked to several other council council members. We're ready to, to make a change. We're, we're going to be putting forth some requests for funding. And I would like to see, I made a request to city management a, a few months ago, bring in a consultant and let's have a comprehensive plan to fight violent crime in Florence, South Carolina, and that's going to take dollars. It's going to take $150,000 to $250,000 to bring everyone together to, to have a billboard campaign that says, you know, protect uh, your gun, protect our community, you know, to get civic in, involvement to say, if you see it, report it. You know what I mean? To, to, to get unity between Darlington County, Marion County, Florence County, and these cities because – we're all being negatively affected by the crime in all of our community, but we're going to have to put money where our mouth is. We're going to have to get proactive. We're going to have to bring in experts, and we're going to have to have a plan that involves multiple people, and, and, and we're going to have to address this comprehensively. We can't just sit here and continue to talk about it and and, and not be proactive. The uh, Sheriff Joy and Chief Heidler just you know um, came together with this task force to address certain you know specific issues and individuals you know and and we're going to need court support so we need we need help from our magistrates we need help from our our state legislator to put the right people in those positions as judges and magistrates well i think we've seen some progress there i mean i think we are i've I've sensed a, a a deeper seriousness about who needs to be making these decisions about who stays incarcerated who doesn't um, who doesn't stay incarcerated? What the bonds are, what the bails are, what these other sorts of things are. I think um, I think I think Captain Brandt said it well. Um, the the best investment you can make, and I'm saying this publicly, is in high quality law enforcement officers. Absolutely, I, mean, I, I really believe that. I think that is a. Um, I mean, obviously billboards and and, and you know um, forums and 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 community input is important. But but I think at the end of the day, the investment we make of the high quality men and women of law enforcement will lead to a safer and more prosperous law. I want to congratulate you, and I mean that I commend you, and I mean that sincerely, um, Captain Brandt, for coming in and saying, "Hey, man, uh, I I put something out there yesterday that was easily misinterpreted. That's on me." But but I want to clear the air, and um, the 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 millions and millions and millions of listeners that hang on every word we utter, um, I hope they accept your not apology, but your clarification there. For what you intended uh juxtaposed to how it was interpreted yeah. my never have i intended to hurt people uh my intention is to heal and grow you know and that that's from all the different uh cases that i've worked homicides and things like that there's there's always a takeaway and if you can if you can glean something and grow from it then we're all better and and we're hoping that that people can glean something from this and help the community get a little bit better. Well explained. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, sir. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
about Batman and Robin? I mean, I like that Batman and Robin better. Rev doesn't like that because it has to be Robin. Yeah, and, and he called me Oates yeah. in that one, too. Well, I mean, I don't know. Hall of Notes. You're a rich girl. What you going to do? <laughs> It's all like, they had a lot of hits, man. They really did. They did. Um, cute hits. Real cute hits. Mm-hmm. Hits that you would probably like. Um, <laughs> hey, we honor a vet every Friday morning at this hour. Uh, today's no different. Uh, name of the vet we're honoring today is Jerry Parker. Jerry and I were talking a little bit about Pamplico and J.P. Stevens and whatnot. Um, but Jerry served in the Navy during Vietnam aboard the aircraft carrier. Is it, um, I'll let you pronounce that. USS Shangri-La. Okay, the Shangri-La. I thought that's how you pronounce it, but I don't want to screw it up. Um, came back to South Carolina, got involved in education. Um, but but you told me during the break, good good morning and, and thank you for joining us to begin thank with. You. But you told me during the break that um, you realized that mama wasn't going to save you. Nope. And, and you were on your own when you got out there. Most of the people we speak with talk about the accelerated maturity that they have to deal with once they join the armed services. What made you want to be a part of that or were you made to be a part of that? This, the time we were talking about is 1966 and 67. I was a senior at Clemson. Mm-hmm. I'd finished first semester, getting ready to graduate. Got a notice that student deferments had been canceled. So I go home to King Street and talk to the draft board. And they said, oh, you're fine. Go ahead and sign up for your last semester. Things are perfect. Go back and sign up. Two weeks later, I get that good letter from Uncle Sam. Greetings. And uh, so I go to Fort Jackson, take a physical. They say, you're 1A, don't leave the city. We'll, you'll hear from us in about two weeks. So I go back to Clemson, and I was thinking, doggone, you know, this sort of changes my outlook on life. Sure. And I'm walking across the campus, and there's a neighbor recruiter standing there. And, of course, he's recruiting. They want him warm bodies. Stop. And I said, here's my situation. What can you do for me? He said, I'll defer you 270 days and let you graduate. All of a sudden, I was a sailor. Wow. That's how simple it was. Fate sort of takes you where it wants you to go. So you go where? You you, you leave Clemson and you go where? Well, I finish up. I'm on scholarship with J.P. Stevens. I go with J.P. Stevens, work for one month. In Pamplico. Yep. I'm gone for two years. And the interesting thing about this, the Navy never sent me to boot camp. They say, ah, you've got two years of National Guard. I mean, I've, I've experienced ROTC at Clemson. We're not going to worry about it. We're seeing it to fleet. So I went to Marietta, Georgia. They issued me a sea bag. Didn't know how to wear the uniform. Didn't know anything about the Navy. I was sent to Charleston, the roughest place in the world about that at that time. The Hells Angels ran it. From there, I went to Marietta. They said, we're going to send you to Spain. The ship's over there. So I got to, to uh, Mayport, right outside of Jacksonville, waiting on the ship. And they said, we'll fly you to Spain. They said, no, we're going to let you wait around. So the ship came in. They said, you're lucky. We're going to take this aircraft carrier on a round-the-world cruise. You're going to go to Europe, and you spend a year there, and then you go to Vietnam and spend a year there, and your two years would be over. Sounded good. Uh my two years was over well before we made it to Vietnam, but it was interesting. So you get to Vietnam, and what do you do? Well, we first of all, they, they took us on a shakedown cruise. And here again, I knew nothing about aircraft. None of us did. We were all 17 to 21 
dumb. As bunch of kids. Bunch of kids running some of the most complicated equipment in the world. And uh, we went down to Cuba, and Cuba was giving us a fit at that time with the Russians and all. So we stayed down there a while, and then went over to Puerto Rico and down to South America. We came back and said, all right, we're headed for Europe. And here, being a naive country boy, you have no idea how big the ocean is to you get on. <laughs> it's big. Real big. Big. How did those experiences affect who you are today? I mean, obviously, you can reflect clearly, vividly. It's almost when I'm, I'm looking at you, and you can almost see it in your, and yeah. you know, right before your eyes, painting a picture. But, but how, how did those experiences of that time affect kind of who you were once you got home? It it changes your entire outlook on life. Any veteran can tell you he's not the same person he, that got out that went in. Uh, most of the people they recruit are naive young people. And that's what they want. Uh, they can recover. They're physically and mentally sharp, and uh, they'll basically do what you tell them to do. You know, you think about it. You're sending young men into combat. You've got to be a good leader for him to jump up knowing he may get shot. So it, it changes your outlook on life. It makes you a little bit more conservative. It makes you a little bit more aware of what's going on around you. You can walk in a room, you can instantly pick up the veterans because you can watch their eyes. They're not going to get in a situation where they can't get out of it. You came home and became a teacher. Yes. How in the world did that happen? Well, as you know, since you're from Pamplico, as soon as we got home, they started sending all the textile business overseas. Mm -hmm. I had just known when I graduated from Clemson as a textile engineer, I'd never have to worry about a job. Within five years, the only jobs were overseas. They moved everything out. Mexico, Taiwan, it was gone. So uh guy asked me, said, do you want to try teaching? I said, well, and found out I loved it and uh, had a good time with it. And was a teacher for how long? Taught for 30 years. Wow. So from being a um, textile engineer at Clemson to a school teacher, where? Where did you teach? Uh, well, I started out in Williamsburg County, and that's another interesting thing. Graduated from Clemson Engineering, you had all the math and science and things you needed. So when I went in and said, I need to be certified, that's where you're certified in physical science, general science, chemistry, physics. So I wound up teaching mainly science and math. Good deal. Well, an interesting story. Thank you for your service to country. I mean that sincerely. Dave Baker here, dressed in his Atlanta Braves attire. He's got a, a list of sponsors, a list of um of goodies that our sponsors are going to make sure um, you get. Uh, sure do. We have prize bags for you. They're filled with premiums, uh, courtesy of Pepsi, Tandem Health, and FTC, including uh, gift cards from Swipe Payment Solutions, Boykin Air Conditioning Services, Piggly Wiggly of Darlington and Hartsville, At Your Service Home Care, the 19th Green Indoor Golf Center, Heinz Furniture. Uh, we also have an oil change from Florence Toyota. A one-night stay at Hotel Florence, downtown Florence, and a $50 gift card for Victor's Steak, Wine, and Seafood, which is located at Hotel Florence downtown. And a special thanks to our presenting sponsors, PD Electric Cooperative, Pepsi of Florence, and Florence Toyota, and all of our supporting sponsors as well. Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate your service and appreciate you being here. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. No, it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's not hard at all. I mean, we're blowhards. There's no brilliance in this studio. I can assure you with that. There may be a little bit of brilliance. Now we got a member of the delegation here, but other than that, it's blowhard central. I mean, I can assure you of that. Um, brilliance does not get you ratings. Brilliance will get you reviews. Bri uh, brilliance will get you uh, prestigious accolades from 
Um, folks, uh, I mean, think of Dylan. I mean, what is Dylan known as? Oh. I mean, he's gotten all sorts of reviews. Let's tell the real quick Springsteen story. So, so Bruce writes, I think it might have been The River. And um, he's real proud of that. And he talks about the lyrical genius and the Rolling Stone. Matt Dylan applauds Springsteen. Of course. I think even, you know, a couple of the uh, Joan Baez, or I don't know, she may have been dead by then. Anyway, somebody back then in high regard, they held in high regard. And uh, Columbia Records says, hey, man, we're, we're selling records here. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> we're not trying to change the world and solve poverty and all these. I mean, we're in the business of selling records. Rev and I clearly understand that our job is to get um, advertisers. And for to, for us to get advertisers, we got to be able to garner an audience. And um, brilliance doesn't get you much of an audience. <laughs> blowharding uh, absolutely does. Speaking of blowharding, we have a call. Yeah, we do. I want to say I don't think Joan Baez is dead. No, who was uh, who was uh, Janis Joplin? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, one of, she is one of those um, one of those Woodstocky characters right. is who I was thinking about. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Morning, Breeze. Kitty, guess what? I've sat in here with one of those great 84 football team players. Uh, my old buddy Bill Bardhill from the 84 Carolina football team. Say hey to Bill Bardhill. Hey, Bill Barnhill, How are you? I'm doing great, Ken. How you doing? I, I pity the fool hanging around with Breeze on a Friday morning. <laughs> hey, there's, there's no better way to start your day. There's no <laughs> better way to start your day. Good buddy. deal. Hey, hey, get, hey, get that protein powder. That's all I hear. Get that protein. Make sure you... You get that protein. Good morning, Breeze. How are you? Good. I want you to remember our offensive line, but we've had some very good. We're talking about these great players from Carolina, Sterling Sharp, George Rogers. But you can't forget, you know, that 84 team, yeah, best record we ever had. They had a heck of an offensive line. You know, we've had some very good offensive line, but in Carolina. So don't just talk about these daggone sissy running back and wide receivers. You need to throw with some of these offensive linemen every now and then. You're, you're right. The, the, the running backs, wide receivers, and quarterbacks are probably voting straight Democrat by now, Breeze. Oh, you know they're Democrats. You know they're Democrats. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. You know, they, 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 they got it all easy. But anyway, listen, man, um, just wanted to, I thought you'd get a kick out of that. I'll talk to you later. Today. Good deal. Okay, Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Yeah, being a big Gamecock, I do um, reminisce on the 84 season. That uh, that fateful trip to Annapolis, Maryland, playing the Naval Academy. I mean, that's the one that kind of um. I mean, the Gamecocks were number two in the country. I think the number one team was Oklahoma. They had lost that week, and the Gamecocks were double-digit favorites going to Annapolis. And you know, the chicken curse reared its head once again. Got two members of the delegation here: uh, Representative Jay Jordan, Representative Philip Lowe. Are with us this morning. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Good morning. So, so brilliance is in the studio now. It's normally full of blowhards, but now we got we got some brilliance. So, I, we we got to go here now because um I normally find an issue that perturbs me enough to rant for a day, and I move on. I find something else to to complain about, to rant about. This student debt issue is a little deeper than that. Um, I tried my best to understand, and once again, guys, I mean, when you're in politics, you try to find answers, right? I mean, we got a problem. What was the solution? How do we get to a better to a better place? Um, I believe, and, and I'll, I'll let you guys jump in. I believe the kid that borrowed the money is the least at fault. I mean, if you give me a chance at eighteen to borrow money to leave home, um, stay in a you know a dorm that may have some girls in there, and near you know some convenience stores sell beer and nightclubs, I mean, I'd probably take you up on that. Uh, the obscene financial arrangement that was made with these kids. I mean, they, they're culpable. They're not completely innocent. And I'm not arguing. They are, but but the government subsidizing the higher education system of America or in America has led to kind of insidious behavior. Um, 
they would argue, uh, representatives, that the reason they've had to increase tuition is the lack of investment the General Assembly has made in subsequent states. Um, in my time in Columbia, I remember that so much of the money was spoken for. I mean, you got your Medicaid matches. You've got your uh, K-12 through education expenditures. You've got your your pension and retirement and all these other sort of uh, health insurance for state employees was a big deal when I was in Columbia. Um, Philip, I mean, I'm not asking you a question about student debt forgiveness, but conceptually, as a member of the General Assembly, a politician, um, what, what do you make of it? There was a reduction in the amount that the state was kicking into that system to higher ed. Um, and, you know, there was an increase in the amount the lottery paid into that system. So I think we were trying to supplant lottery money for state general fund money for a while, and and then the tuition just kept rising. And now, and I'm not sure we've got it right now because we've not really done anything about it. Well, we have for, I think, four years in a row now, we have frozen tuition. But we've frozen tuition by giving them a little more money. And, and we're guaranteeing that. Now, the one switch that I made or we made was we started reimbursing for in-state students. And we didn't give them any extra for out-of-state. They're already getting twice the, uh, you know, the tuition for an out-of-state student than in-state. So we did take up for South Carolinians at least and the taxpayers who are having kids going to college and, and we froze tuition. Problem is, is we're still using public money to, to help the freeze. The taxpayer is backdooring the 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 lack of a tuition increase is being subsidized by the taxpayer in the back door, kind of a backdoor way of funding that. Is that a fair? True. Okay. It's true. It's another. <laughs> it's just like the bailout. I sure. Mean, so we're bailing out higher ed, and they're still cruising along pretty good. Uh, it's it's far more af- less affordable than it ever was, and and I think I don't know. Just throw out fifty percent of the. The degrees that are coming out are really not enough to go and pay back student loans on. They're not making enough income out of it. Uh, the, we we limit the number of people who can go into a certain profession and cap the number of kids in there. We don't cap the number of history majors or English majors, you know. And so they come out with with a degree where there's a lot more competition for the jobs that that degree what supposedly prepares you for and then you've got the real rote universities that started just getting into all kinds of crazy modern day useless degrees about wokeism jay is the model broken probably i mean and that's if there's a silver lining in this process maybe the hope would be that this this you know complete overstep by the the president and the federal government in this um this example of student loan forgiveness Perhaps it would be the thing that sort of shines the light on the, the process. And, you know, the realities of this are, are undeniable. You know, you, you gave some examples, and I heard them earlier this week. I, I remember when I went that first um, semester in college and, you know, paid my bill, and I think it was had a little help from scholarship money, I think, but it, I think it was 900 and something dollars for a semester at the, the College of Charleston. Um, I, that number is much, much, much greater. Uh, and, I remind the members of the de- other members of the delegation when they give me grief about missing uh, 
for instance, my Friday mornings, I am I am the youngest member of the delegation, sure. so I'm the closest member to, that can remember what college tuition was 20 years ago. Um, and the the explosion that we've seen and what it costs um, is is unbelievable. Should Philip, I'll go back to you. Should and I mean th- this is kind of a provocative question, but I think people respect politicians who give heartfelt answers. Should the government fund higher education? I mean, is that a fundamental debate? Is that a debate worthy of having the libertarian worldview? I mean, you've got friends, I've got friends that don't believe we should have any responsibility at all to higher education. I'm not there. I mean, I've got a big libertarian bias about me, but I do believe that government. I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it has a responsibility, but but I'm not totally opposed to government supporting higher education in some way, shape, or form. But when the federal government decided to guarantee all of the student debt, it gave the colleges the ability to raise prices, whether they could justify it or not. So why should we fund K twelve and nothing above? I mean, just ask that simple question. I, I don't know. I mean, if if the next level actually is the final level that prepares you, quote, for a job, you know, for a specific job even, or of direction, then why do we stop? I'll tell you what I'd like to do, because it sounds like communism when you say what I just said, eliminate entitlements. That's where you sit on your butt and you get paid. Listen, if you're going to school to try to better yourself, I'll swap you entitlements for higher ed. I'll pay all your higher ed, knock out the entitlements. That's a hand up instead of a hand out. Jake? You know, um, we hear all the time, I got a little bit of a libertarian streak in me, and that's common in the world we all live and operate, the people we share views with. Um, and I, I got a little bit of that. I don't like the government telling me a lot of things they tell me and how to live and what to do. Um, but there are certain, again, back certain realities to it. We can say we're going to not have the government involved in these things. And guess what? You're going to be very less competitive when it comes to competing on the uh, regional and, and national and international stage. So if we were to say we're not going to be involved, the, the state is not going to be involved at all in, in funding of higher ed, um, we would be the outlier in that, and we would uh, be at a competitive disadvantage when it comes to Georgia and Tennessee and those states around us that we are competing with on a daily basis to bring economic development, not just to Florence, but to the entire state of South Carolina. So in some sense, I agree. Um, the government has, has found its way into way too many places that it has no business. And I can I can speak for at least the, the members of the delegation that are here on a regular basis, like Philip and Mike and myself. We spend a far too much of our time trying to push the government out of places it has no business being in the lives of, of the people of South Carolina. But it does have a role to play when it comes to um, – the things we're talking about in higher ed and competing in economic development, bringing industry to South Carolina. Why is college so expensive, Philip? I mean, take, take your take your House of Representatives hat off for a second and put your, your dad hat on or, or your American citizen hat on. Why, why do you think college has gotten so damn expensive? Well, I think we flooded it with money. You know, student loan bubble, money. A bubble? Lottery money, General Assembly money. And they're crowded. Listen, if, if you've got... Uh, people waiting in line to get into USC and you're turning them down, go up on tuition. I mean, why not? I mean, that's just kind of supply and demand, isn't it? But, but isn't the federal government's backstopping of student debt? I mean, if we had a normal financial arrangement, in other words, if a kid went to, let's say a C student from Hannah Pamplico High School, I can kind of relate to that, who may have drank <laughs> too much beer and smoked a little weed every now and then. Um, let's say that kid goes to a, a lending institution and says, I want to borrow X number of dollars 
go to college. That's a pretty risky proposition. Now, if a kid who's had straight A's, you know, uh, been a Boy Scout, wants to go to Clemson to get a degree in engineering, that the banks see, I mean, you, you live in a risk world. I mean, I, you know, we all do. We're all in business to some degree. We, we, we um, account for risk. We, we, I don't know, we, we consider the risk and we make decisions based upon that. It seems to me the problem in higher education, there is no risk to the university. The university has no skin in the game. Why wouldn't the university have 8,000 um, students come in for their freshman class? Why wouldn't they try to um, build enough dorms to accommodate 60,000 students? There is no downside to, to how many drop out, how many fail to complete, how many don't belong there to begin with. Jay, you're not in your head. No, and in addition to that, and I think you said this the other day or a caller did, we've built this economic substructure around it. You go to Columbia, and if you just say, we're going to cut the number of kids at USC by 10%, well, that's 10% less people in the different businesses that have been built around that. The Starbucks may close. The the Chick-fil-A may have half the the, the amount of business it had. There's economic, uh, you know, connectivity to those things. I I think if we were to sit down, and I, I know we would because I've done this, sit down here at the table and put out a legal pad and start writing down what are the reasons why. You know, I can give you one. When, when I went to college, um, it was a desk, a blackboard, and this wasn't that long ago. Um, and the building was it, it was dimly lit. It was not the, the nicest of the nice. Now you go and you visit your daughter or Philip. You know you've got kids in college, and, and I'm not you know saying I want them to have the nicest of the nice. But these are palaces in some sense. Climbing walls, lazy <laughs> yeah. rivers, Starbucks in the dorm. Kids are, are going to school and studying in in places that don't look like uh, higher education centers from even. 20 years 10 20 years ago these are beautiful facilities and there's some again there's some competitiveness in that we're trying to attract industry and those kind of things so i'm not saying those things are all bad but again if we were to get out that piece of paper and list all the things there's a bunch of reasons and one thing that i have been that have had my eyes open to since i've been in the general assembly is the need to reshape the focus back to um the technical schools you know, if you go back and look at um, when we came into COVID and now that we've come out of COVID, you look at the jobs that are unfilled in South Carolina because that's one of the things we, we're struggling with. We've got jobs and nobody to fill those jobs. They're not jobs that necessarily – they're not jobs that require four-year French literature degrees to go get those jobs. These are um, computer-type, you know, um, technical-type jobs that you can be well-prepared for by going to a two-year school. And we've got to get the focus back – on where we've lacked, and that's one of the things that we can work on and change the mindset and improve the process. Last question to this segment, and you guys will hang around one more, I hope. Um, you guys can't control what Exxon or Shell or Mobile or Ford or GM or Home Depot or Lowe's or any of the big company, Walmart would be another, um, but you can control what side of hires are made in state government. Would either of you be in favor of changing some of the job requirements of a, a certain kind of job that may require a college degree now, but but really and truly, honestly, you really can't defend why it does. I mean, in other words, that's just the way it is. I mean, I live in a just, just the way it is world, and I, some things I don't like because that's just the way it is, but it's not worth the battle. But but is there should there be an interest in the General Assembly to revisit some of the state jobs that the government does pay, that the government does have control over, and, and what sorts of requirements stipulate whether you can have that job or not? Well, LLR and the boards of each profession protect their profession. It's a turf battle. And I remember, I mean, this sounds crazy, but Nikki Haley had a bill, and it was about shampooing and who could shampoo and what kind of training you had to do to shampoo. You know, I shampoo my hair every morning. 
Good Lord, I I don't I think my mama told me how to do it. I I learned one time not to get soap in my eyes, yeah. and after that I did pretty good with it. So there's some silliness out there, but it's it's all turf, and they're protecting their little fiefdom from another one getting in and, and taking their funds. Their but, money. But the only people that can violate their their turf is the General Assembly. You, you would agree to that, and it's going to be a little bit controversial to to start kind of meddling in their business. I, I just got to believe it's time now. That, that we begin considering things in education, and I think that relates to college education. You know, can, can a person that does this job in state government do it without a college degree? Of course they can, but the requirement says they do. And you're right, it's turfy, to use your word, but do you believe there should be any, kind of an interest in the General Assembly exploring some of those opportunities? The libertarian side says yes. I was at a meeting one time, and, and the guy was taking that concept to some extremes. I said, well, tell me something. Do you think a neurosurgeon needs a degree, needs to pass boards, needs to have residencies? And his answer was no. He said, look at Yelp. Look at these. Yeah, look at these different comments. <laughs> okay. How many people died from this guy doing neurosurgery? We will quickly avoid that guy. And I went, well, that, that's that stinks kind of a for the way. first hundred people through the door. right? But, the, <laughs> but that's <laughs> the extreme libertarian position. I mean, it you'll is. agree to that. That's the extreme libertarian. I mean, I don't want to drive across the Mississippi River on a bridge unless it was designed by an educated engineer. You know, I, I don't want to go to court unless I've got a, you know, a legally trained and educated lawyer. Uh, I don't want my heart worked on by anybody who's not a, uh, a cardio, cardiatic, uh, what am I, cardiologist or cardiatric, uh, what am I trying to say? Cardiothoracic surgeon. surgeon. Yeah. There, there you go. I knew you would save me. There I, thought of, I thought about doing that for a living and decided to. I study that in my, in my free time. I'm going to come back in just a second and, and, uh, and talk about a couple of other issues that I think matter to the voters of South Carolina. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Friday morning. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. I'm going to go in a completely different direction, but it certainly has to do with government being in places that doesn't belong. But would it be improper for a guy that owns a tow truck company and he, he operates it also to be a highway patrolman, show up to a wreck scene and and tell the folks there, you know, don't worry about it. I got your cars. I have my tow truck driver. Come get all this cleaned up. Don't you worry about a thing. Uh, well, of course it would be improper. And it's probably illegal. So why do we allow funeral home owner and operators to be elected coroner and then this guy deals uh, with a family of people immediately after they die. I think in what Marion County, the coroner's office is in the funeral homes. Uh, so amongst the many problems that we have in this state, I think it's certainly time that we professionalize uh, that um, that position. But it's I sort of equate it to Ken uh, legitimate objection to um, lawyers in the legislature picking the judges that their suits go in front of so thank you guys thank you jim appreciate that i don't know much about the car or the funeral home situation jay and i talk a lot about this and i don't think he minds me divulging some of these conversations because i believe we're in a period now, now some of these it's easy for me to say this because i'm not asking anybody to vote for me but i think the more the voter confronts excuse me the more the elected official confronts the voter not adversarial but in an honest sincere attempt to clear the air about whatever disagreement or issue we're dealing with I think the better we are. I mean, I, I do. I believe that for many, many, many years, politicians have said, hey, let's wait this one out. 
You know what I mean? Let, let, let's, let, let's kind of um, let's hide for a week or two or three and see how this works itself out. Um, Jay knows that there's an issue. I don't want to put words in his mouth. He knows very well there's an issue with how we pick judges in South Carolina. We're not just sure there's a good way. I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you and I have had a hundred conversations uh, about this issue, and I know your sincerity, and I know you want to do what's right for the judicial system, excuse me, judiciary and the people of South Carolina, but but we don't know a much better way to do it. So it's you, the starting point is recognizing we're dealing with the most difficult thing government deals with, the concept of justice. You know, we're a country that our founders, if you look back at our history, were passionate about this concept. They've been railroaded and treated improperly by, by everyone that led them to even be in the, to, to found this country. And so we're starting at, from a point of administering justice is a very difficult concept. And we rely on this innocent until proven guilty concept. Uh, and, and so where do you, you're constantly balancing the individual rights of we've arrested this person. You know, they're still innocent. We have to prove them guilty beyond a, beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of their peers. And that whole process takes place. So you're dealing with a, a difficult, um, this isn't just a, one person says, I saw that guy do it, lock him up, let's hang him in the county square like it was in, in, in some places in, around the world. So we're dealing with a very difficult concept to start with. And I'll be the first to admit, there, have we found the perfect way to, to tackle the subject matter? Absolutely not. And do I welcome the, the discussion on the issue? Of course I do. We, this is something, while it is the, maybe perhaps the hardest thing we do, is something that we should invest a great deal of, of effort and, and discussion into getting as best as we can possibly get it. And, and that includes either, Philip, and you, you've talked about this a lot. Um, you're not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Um, but there's a scenario where judges run for office. And they advertise on billboards, on radio shows. They solicit contributions from whomever is willing to believe that's a wise investment in the political system. Or we get to a place where the General Assembly reserves the right to um, screen. And there's a screening committee. Um, I don't like anyway. I mean, you know, I, the, the reason I complain about it is I can complain. I mean, if Jay took one side, I could take the other. If Philip took one, I could take the other. It is a complicated matter that doesn't offer easy solutions. Well, he started out with examples of conflict of interest. On the other hand, who knows most about other lawyers or judges who want to become a higher level judge? The lawyers do. The lawyers talk amongst themselves. They talk about who's got the right kind of demeanor to be behind the bench, who treats people fairly, who makes fair decisions, who weighs in all the circumstances. So lawyers are familiar with the people very often that are running. So, I mean, they give great insight. When I want to know, hey, what do you think about this judge? I'll ask Jay. You know, and if Jay doesn't know, he'll call some of his buddies and say, well, what do you know about this guy in your area? Is he worthy of being a higher-level judge, or has he been making good decisions? So it, it's it's no perfect answer, but, but there's a balance between the conflict of interest and, and the lawyers who actually know best who's doing a, who will do a good job. That may be the nicest thing you've ever said about a lawyer or lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Philip and I kind of share the same sentiment when it comes to, you know, uh, law, lawyers are like kids. Kids suck. Except my kids, you know, my, my kids are better than. Anyway, I want to go back to this because, um, and, and I'm going to put you on the spot a bit, but you guys are comfortable with this. So um, last week we talked a little bit about a, a current judiciary chair and their wife being, you know, in the running for a spot on the, on the South Carolina Supreme Court. That just adds to the distrust 
the the apprehension, uh, the lack of transparency or potential lack of transparency to the system. You understand that. You're, you're not oblivious to that. I mean, Jay, you're a lawyer. You're well-informed about the law and legal and legal matters. But you don't expect the public to just say, okay, uh, I don't have anything to say about that. Of course, people should have a lot to say about that. Of course. And there, there's natural questions that come as far as that individual who's applying for that job. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to get the person who's going to do the best job, who's most qualified, who we can look at their track record and, say, justice equally. and who's prepared to do that job. Now, should someone be excluded just because they of who they married? Probably. Is that a fair question? Oh, it's absolutely. It's, 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 you know, so when you're trying to pick that person to do that job, everything's on the table. This is not, we're not picking someone, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, we're not picking someone to throw papers in the front yard. We're picking someone to sit on the highest court in the state of South Carolina and to administer justice that we just said was perhaps the government's you know most important underlying function and most difficult function. So this is something that, you, you know, if you apply for that job, you better be able to answer all the questions presented by anyone who who comes to the table to ask them. And that's a that's a fair accounting. I mean, you know, I've got an opinion, and and I mean, Jay gets frustrated with me at times because I have a a little different opinion. I tend to be leaning toward let let's reform the way we do it now. I I, I just think I think the the notion of I mean, we live in a world where people are so concerned about insiderism, and you know that. I mean, it's not it's not just South Carolina; it's all over the country. People are very skeptical of what happens behind closed doors in American politics. And I think the optic, I mean, I've said it, and I'll say it again, the optic of a judiciary chair's wife running for a seat on the Supreme Court just ain't good. I mean, it just doesn't play well in today's political climate. Philip, you're no fool. You know that is kind of the hand that, that we have to play. I, th- I think we all have concerns about favoritism that, that happens. Uh, and, you know, it gives people an advantage, but we probably grill that person even harder because of it. We, I press down on somebody that I know is related to them, and, and I've voted against people that sit within a few desks of me that I say, no, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to pick this person. But I picked that person because I thought they were the most conservative candidate. The most serious appointment that we have is is the Supreme Court. And uh, I take that one very seriously. I'll never make the mistake again of trying to pick somebody because they're from my geographical area or because they're a male or a female or black or white. I'm going to go and get the most conservative candidate that the three that they select. They select three people and give me a choice on three people. That's the way the world works right now. And I'm just going to pick the one that that I know is going to do the best conservative job. And I think that's a reasonable position to hold. Let's go to the phone. Terry in Lake City. Good morning, Terry. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, Ken, I'm going to back up just a little bit to Brian Braddock and the situation with the city. I don't think uh, spending $150,000, $200,000 on billboards or hiring a consultant or putting this committee, that's not going to change anything with the crime. I mean, if you got one hundred fifty, two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars laying around to hire somebody to give you a suggestion, why not hire more cops? And that's that's all I've got to say. But I think that would be money spent in, in the wrong direction. And uh, and until people start wanting change within themselves, nothing's going to change. No matter how much we want it to happen, no vigil. No amount of the churches, no matter anything, until each individual person is just making wrong choices or bad decisions. And until they choose personally to make that decision, and if they choose to keep making the bad decisions, there's got to be harsh 
harsher consequences. I, I think mean, they got to be held re- held responsible, and and I'll get off the air and uh, let y'all deal with that. Thank, Thank you, Terry. I mean, I think it's always important to encourage people to do the right thing after we take care of those who don't. I mean, in priority or in order of priority, I'm always concerned about are we attacking crime before or after we encourage people to not break the law. Uh, it seems to me that politics in general, the abstract nature of politics, allows us to theorize and hypothesize about certain things. I'd be far more inclined to support investments in hard assets, people, you know, um, police officers, uh, guns, weapons, whatever, whatever it takes to deal with the criminal element. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe there should be a PR campaign to try and make people aware of crime <clears throat> after after we have invested every single asset that we have at our avail in, in the hard assets to try and combat crime. We've got a problem. I mean, you know it. I know it. A lot of us know it. And um, and I'm concerned about how we're going to address it. The two of you will be intimately involved in that. Uh, you have helped law enforcement locally. Philip, I know you got um, you did quite the job for the Florence County Sheriff's Office in making sure they got some of the resources they needed to keep our people safe. I'll start with you. I mean, you heard the caller. Um, your, your opinion of that. The judicial system is a system. It's multifaceted, and, and Jay can explain it better than I can for sure. Um, I, I think the joke of it is we, we had a we had a guy introduce a bill, and it was a, a bill to form a committee to study committees. <laughs> it, it was a joke, but it, it, it the caller is saying, you know, do we do we need more committees? And and um, the one thing that committees can do, and it allows the general public to have a moment of input, and that, that's the way our subcommittees work. Is the general public can come in and testify, and we listen to them. I've, we've seen committees go on for what days up there where people come in and testify. So we need to hear from people. Do we need professionals? I don't know. If you tell me a professional who's really turned a city around, he might be worth some money. But um, but the caller may be correct. We've got to get back to the basics and, and include the things we already know are helpful, and that is supporting police, having good magistrates, having courts that deal with it, that punish, and uh, make sure that it's publicly known what people got so punishment may deter some of the problems. You know, it sounds like a cliche, um, but the reality is um, the the only real solution for for bad guys is to have more good guys. Um, it goes back to why I supported Phillips' bill um, years ago for, for training teachers in schools that wanted to be trained on firearms so that they could defend the, the um, when tragedy, when and if tragedy struck, there would be someone there to defend uh, the people and the, the territory, so to speak. Um, there are places to, to have meetings and, and input. Um, another example, I think Philip and I, back in the end of last year, we had a meeting in Columbia where we invited, Philip invited all of different law enforcement groups across from across the state government to say, how can we help you? And, and that was a very informative opportunity. And out of that grew uh, tangible ways we could help them and try and improve their situation so that they could better serve the community. But the reality is um, we, we know the answers to the to, to the things that, that plague us. And it goes back to that cliche that some would say a cliche is if they're bad guys, we need good guys and we need more of them. Well said. Thanks to both of you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm 
tooting our own horn here uh, based on the segment that we have every Friday morning in the 8 o'clock hour. We open it up for uh, some of our local delegations. Toot it, Rev. Toot it. Well, no. If we don't, nobody would. Well, in, in, no, in, the, in this case, I want to commend the legislators that do come in here. Uh, because if you think about it, that's that's a pretty rare thing. They'll, they're willing to come in here, answer any question on any subject you have on your mind, and also take calls. And in the blind. And we don't screen the calls and don't know what they're going to talk about, and they will address an issue that a caller has on their mind, and it's and providing that direct conduit between a listener and the legislators in this public forum. I just, I don't know, I, I, I think that's what radio is all about well, and, to and me, what we do here. That's what lacks in American politics. I think when voters have a chance to directly communicate with their, you know, with their representatives, it's a better system. It works better. You're right. I mean, I got to believe that Jay and Philip both kind of swallow hard when I say, let's go to line one. <laughs> you know, who is that and what are they going to say? But I do believe that voters reward candidates and office holders who, you know, deal with them on their ground, you know, where they are. It's, it's, it's it, you know, meet me at my office at the state house. Come on. Nah, I mean, call 843-661-0937 on Friday morning and talk directly to these people mm-hmm. who are doing the best they know how to represent you and your interests. Let's go to the phone. Angela in Florence. Good morning, Angela. Good morning. Um, yes, I agree with that statement. Um, it is awesome to be able to have them, you know, right there at your fingertips, Um and I, I appreciate the the personable part of each of them. Um, second thing is the last caller, Terry. I um, I also agree with him wholeheartedly. If you're going to do a, a consultation or you know hire a consultant or do a PR campaign, you need to you need to get somebody local. You need to get somebody who's been in it somebody that is experienced within this area and sees it but also has the common sense and does not mind speaking um his mind or her mind uh, you know about what what's right and what's wrong with our local system um but what i actually called for (laughs) excuse me what i actually called for is um, we need to be talking about Title IX. Title IX is scary, and we've got to stand up against it. Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate that. Yeah, I'll do a little digging on that. I mean, I know what she's talking about with Title IX. Um, you know, I, I want to go back to real quick, and, and, and we'll get to Title IX. I'll assure you of that because there's a lot of things going around um, Title IX, some of the interpretations of Title IX. But I want to go back. I, I'm a contrarian and cynic. I don't put much stock in the spoken word. I mean, I just don't. I mean, as I was younger, I mean, I believe I could talk money into the bank. I could talk business into the door. I could talk my kids into doing exactly what they needed to do. And I realized that talk is not action. The spoken word is not an accomplishment. When when a lot of important people get in a room and, 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 you know, converse or conversate with one another and come out with, um, with all these wonderful ideas, if you don't put them into action, it doesn't mean anything. So as I've gotten older, I'm far less interested in what someone has to say and far more interested in what they do, how they do it. Will they do it? Will they take a chance? Once again, a speech is simply a speech. It is a bunch of spoken words. Some are good at it. Some struggle at it. But action is what I'm interested in. As it relates to crime, I don't really care what people have to say about crime. What are they doing 
about crime? What are we doing as elected leaders to address the crime problem in Florence, Sumter, Orangeburg? Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. We're almost at the finish line of another week of radio mediocrity. <laughs> but we did the best we could, yeah, right? We tried. Hey, um, California, a California board voted on or is voting or has voted on whether to ban the sale of new gasoline-powered cars by 2035. Guys, that's only 12 or 13 years out. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Jeff, tell us the latest on the Chicago board and uh, and whether or not they have voted to ban the sale of new gasoline power cars in 12 or 13 years. Yeah, it's California's Air Resource Board that did vote yesterday on Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom's plan that's essentially, well, it begins with 35% of new vehicles sold there in 2026. They have to be zero emission. That number is increased every year uh, to a full ban on new sales of gas-powered vehicles by 2035. And it requires 100% of new cars, trucks, and SUVs to be powered by electricity or hydrogen by 2035, though uh, the regulation only it, it only covers new cars, so not used cars. Used cars will still be sold. Gas-powered used cars will, well, at least for now, uh, in the language that we see now, um, uh, used cars will still be able to be sold. Um, it, it does not impact existing gas-powered vehicles, which will still be legal to own and drive, again, for now. So, Jeff, what sort of accommodations will be made? I mean, I mean if we get to 2035 and we're not as... Um, We've not benefited from new and renewable energy and electric cars as we uh, are ambitiously predicting. Is there the ability to kind of go back and undo what has been done? Uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, first of all, the federal government has the final say. The the measure now goes to the EPA, uh, but you know, with the Biden administration, it's likely to to pass. And Governor Newsom. He's pledged to spend billions of dollars to boost zero-emission vehicle sales, including adding chargers, uh, you know, the statewide. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the, the, new, the new rules uh, approved by the, the board also says that you know, vehicles need to be able to travel 150 miles on, on one charge. So we'll see. But, you know, we've talked about this in the past. The infrastructure is not there uh, across this country. We need more charging stations. We need uh, we need more infrastructure. We need to produce more electricity. Um, Elon Musk uh, last year said that electricity production needs to double to transition to electric vehicles. Uh, And in 2020, the grandson of Toyota's founder warned against pitfalls of electrifying all cars in Japan. The cost to create an infrastructure to power all electric vehicles in the country, it could top $400 billion. Do we expect, um, or, or is it expected that any other state, I mean, California kind of leads the way on renewable energy and green energy. Do we expect any other state to follow suit? Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, perhaps. It's, it's, it's the state's decision. It, it was a push by Governor Gavin Newsom uh, and, and, and this board. Um, so we'll see what happens with other states, but this is the first state in, in the country that, that did this. And, and, and by the way, the onus is really going to be on lawmakers, on automakers, uh, which could be fined to $20,000 per vehicle sold short of California's goal. So, uh, automakers are really going to have to, you know, kind of watch these numbers closely uh, as they, as they approach, uh, 2035, because, uh, you know, obviously they don't want to 
be hit with a twenty thousand dollar fine uh, per per car sold that doesn't meet the standard. So uh, we shall see. Last question: Were the auto were the auto manufacturers allowed to give input to this California board? Mm, perhaps, yeah, perhaps. I, I don't know. I don't know the details of the conversations between uh, the state of California and automakers, but you know, maybe. Um, I, I just don't know. But California is one of those states. I think mean, 16% of the cars sold there this year are, are electric. So we're seeing more cars in California uh, turn to, to, or at least owners turn to electric cars. Same thing in Florida. That's got pretty high numbers. Rest of the country, not so much. Uh, but, but all in all, even in, you know, in this country, the footprint of new vehicles sold only about 2% uh, electric. So we're not there yet as consumers, but uh, if you live in California, you're going to be forced to to buy those cars if you want to buy a new car. Well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend, sir. You too. Thank you. Interesting. Um, kind of an interesting take that they would um, <laughs> they would not even take input from auto manufacturers. Maybe they did. Uh, maybe they did not. But uh, anyway, that's kind of a uh, that's an ambitious goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine we're sitting in America. And we're not making this up. This is in a movie script. And a state is saying that in 12 years, you're going to be outlawed from selling cars that burn gasoline. I mean, we are here in America. Now, we're also living in the same country that said to um, Jokovic, uh, Novak Jokovic, um, you can't come to our country because you're not vaccinated and play in a tennis tournament. Now, we got thousands of people coming across the border. Uh, none are vaccinated. We don't know where they are, what they're doing, what right. they've got with them. But but a um, Novak, listen, Novak Djokovic cannot come play in the U.S. Tennis Open because he's not been vaccinated. We refer to ourselves as home of the free, well, land of the free, home of the brave. No, we're not. We're not at all. Stop that. I mean, let's take that out of the national anthem. I mean, if I were an elected official, right. I would I would vote to exclude that from the national anthem because I don't want to lie to the world. We're not home of the free land of the brave or land of the free home of the brave. We're simply not that. The Atlanta Braves, maybe. I mean, Freebird plays every now and then on a Friday night off a jukebox in a, in a joint somewhere. But, I mean, we're not we're not free and brave anymore. Well, why Stop do all these that. people want to come here I mean, illegally? I mean, I guess, you know, for opportunity. The opportunity to live off the government dole. I mean, maybe that's the um, the exciting proposition that America affords. Hey, if you sneak into that country... They'll give you health care if you don't work. They'll give you money if you don't work. But they'll, they'll take care of you. That, that, that Maybe that's what we have become. Maybe that's why people so desire to come to America. Because we've proven that, that we're willing to go into $30 trillion of debt taking care of people who don't take care of themselves. But to suggest we're free and brave, when a tennis tournament, I mean, he played in every other major tournament in the world that don't profess to be free and brave, right? We're pretty normal. I mean, we're here. We're pretty normal. Uh, Wimbledon in London. I mean, nothing exciting about London, right? London don't profess to be free and brave, but he played at Wimbledon. He's not allowed to play at the United States Open because we're not free enough nor brave enough. Simply put, let's go to the phone. Here's Matt in Florence. Morning, Matt. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, here's here's the thing that bothers me the most about this whole Biden college thing is First of all, he's using a 9-11 act, which is disgusting if you think about it. Like, what happened to people on that day to use that money to pay off college debts or to use that act as a way to kind of loop around to get get it passed or, or not even get it passed to get it done? 
is disgusting and it's never going to hold up in any sort of court, not even Supreme Court, like just a, a normal. Matt, if we, Matt let, me, let me stop you there. Let me, let me stop you there. If it gets standing, it won't hold up. But I'm telling you, it's going to be hard to get standing. I mean, you've got to have standing to get it before a judge. And, and I've read a lot about it yesterday. I was going to save this till Monday because I want to do a little more digging and talk to a few more sources of mine. But it looks to me like that there may be lack of standing to get this before a court. That's just crazy to me. That three, four hundred billion dollars should, you know, there should be some sort of discussion. It, it didn't even go through Congress. But, I mean, damn. But that wasn't actually why I called uh, the thing that bothers me about all this is, like, if you were sending kids off to college and you knew uh, your kids were going to get, uh, you know, a leg up in life and things like that if they went there, I would almost be on board with being a participant helping that out. But that's not really what happens there. Like, I know whenever you sent your daughter to college, you knew in your mind that somebody was going to try to manipulate her into being a liberal, and that's most of what college is, is doing and then to take us, our, the, you know, the subhuman people that didn't go to college, the unenlightened ones, and tell us that we have to pay for them to teach your kids to hate our country? Hell no. And I'm not paying for that. And that's the biggest problem I have with it is because college is a disguise. But one, yeah, you can get a little education and get yourself a, a good paying job, but that's not really what the, the main thing, the focus for the Democrats is with college. What they want to do is pump out liberals. And that's the place to take young, dumb, impressionable kids and liberalize them. And that's really the main point of sending all these kids off to college for Democrats. It's got nothing to do with learning a skill. It's got nothing to do with them getting ahead in life and, you know, making a good life for themselves. That's all a, a bunch of nonsense. And anybody who believes that's a fool. But like you said, we're an unserious nation. So that's what we get. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate that. I want to hold on to this till Monday because I want to make sure I don't want to go too far down this road because I could get to the weeds with this. Um, does anybody have standing when it comes to this decision made by the executive office or the executive branch of government? That's a good question. I mean, there was a big debate in um, at the Hoover Institute, Stanford Law. Uh, I read some other things from Emory. Uh, some of these legal scholars and constitutional scholars are arguing whether or not someone would have standing. If it gets to the court, it'll get turned down. I mean, no doubt about it. But you've got to have standing, and they're, they're, they're having a hard time understanding how someone could have standing. I want to go back to the, the issue of higher education. It's kind of dominated the conversation this week, and you know my feeling about the way we've um, modeled higher education. It's a scam. I don't make any bones about it. I'm not apologizing to anybody. I've got a lot of board members who are friends. I've got some high-ranking college administrators who are friends of mine. Um, I find them to be as moral and decent as I am. Every bit as moral and ethical as I've ever thought about being maybe more morally and more ethically uh, inclined than I am. But the model's broken. And if you give human beings to get more than their fair share of the pie, they'll normally take you up on it. But I mean, they will. It's just human nature. Um, I can charge as much as I want for radio advertising because the government backstops all the people who may or may not pay for it. I mean, we're probably going to take some liberties with that. I mean, I'd like to believe Community Broadcasters is a company that operates with a genuine and sincere moral compass. But, I mean, if that were law of the land, we'd probably take advantage of that. It's just the nature of business. Um, it's kind of the animal spirits of capitalism. So, so in colleges, when colleges were given basically carte blanche to charge whatever it is they choose to charge, some took the public up on that. And the government said, and this is the problem with all of this, Rev, because somebody said it would take a thousand different things to fix it. No, it takes one. 
But if you do one thing, a lot of dominoes begin to fall. And higher education is forced to market correct. It's only one thing. Disallow the federal government from backstopping student debt. You have a true market of education. You have a true financing of education. If I go to a bank or my family goes to a bank and tries to borrow money to send me to Carolina, they're going to know whether or not they think I'm going to succeed in paying them back. You're going to have guidelines and parameters. And, and look, I'll even go this far to, to prove I'm not a pure libertarian. I would agree that if somebody at a small rural school with no resources needs to go to college, let's make scholarships more available. I mean, let's fund some sort of merit-driven scholarship program. I mean, if the government wants to incentivize worthy people from going to co- for going to college, then let's incentivize a scholarship program. I mean, let's give them the money. Let's not call it a loan. Let's create a slush fund and let's identify kids that have worked their asses off academically to have a chance to go and make a better way by becoming a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, businessman, or woman. I got no problem with that. I mean, I'm as, about as libertarian as they come on this issue. But if the government wants to set aside X number of dollars, now I don't understand why we don't demand the colleges to do it. Harvard's got $60 billion with a B. That's $600 million. I'm sorry, $6,000 million. I mean, that's how much Harvard has cash on hand. Yale has $40 billion. So between those two prestigious universities, there's $100 billion in an endowment or two endowments. So why does a welder from Pamplico have any business subsidizing or helping pay back the debt of somebody who graduated from Harvard Law? If there's, if there's a Harvard Law student who is either in delayed payment, deferment, or default, take the money out of the Harvard endowment. I mean, that, you know, you, you're the guy that educated him. He's apparently not been a real good investment for you. So take the money out of the endowment. The universities have to have skin in the game. But if the universities aren't going to be forced to have skin in the game, discontinue the federal backstopping of, of student debt. That forces a market correction. Now, now once again, to Jay's point and to Philip's point, and, and I'll agree with this, it will be incredibly destructive to some of these false economies. I mean, there'll be fewer kids in the lazy rivers. There'll be fewer kids at the Starbucks in the dorms. There might even be a rock wall or two that has to reduce its hours of operation. I mean, the tragedy of that. I mean, I understand it's tragic for young people not to experience some of those um, very normal amenities of college life, right? <laughs> normal? Yeah. Well, Sounds then, pretty luxurious well, I mean, to me. I've seen a couple of dorm rooms lately, you know, and they're, they're like, wow, okay. <laughs> uh, the brief, the cup of coffee I had at Walford, you fought for a shower. There was one on the hall. You know what I mean? And you forgot, to, okay, I need to go then to make sure it's not crowded. And, you know, you get a little hot water. I mean, that was kind of like winning the lottery. <laughs> if half your shower is hot water, you won the lottery there. Um, I'm not saying that's the way it needs to be. Maybe it doesn't need to be boot camp, but it certainly doesn't need. We can't afford for it to be what it is, Rev. You know how I know we can't afford it? Afford it because we're giving a bailout. If we could afford it, we wouldn't be bailing out between half a billion, excuse me, half a trillion and a trillion dollars in student debt. And we've done nothing to address the problem. Somebody argued with me yesterday. Yeah, but there would be a lot fewer students. So? So? I mean, what? what, what, what? 
what does that mean? I mean, there'd lot be a lot. There'd be a lot fewer students going to come to college. We'd be a lesser society, would we? I don't know. I mean, I think education's important. I treasure education. I value education. I mean, I don't have many regrets in life. I do kind of sort of regret not giving more effort than I did when I went to Walford in the early, early 80s. I mean, I wish I tried a little harder, but I was 18 and dumb and hard-headed and liked beer and girls and like most 18, <laughs> like most 18-year-old boys who had never been away from home. Um, but but I, just, I just think that there, we, we, we talked ourselves into believing there's a thousand different things we've got to do. Ken, you got no idea how complicated this is. All the complication leaves the room if we abandon and abolish the backstopping of student debt. When the federal government says, hey, we're not guaranteeing that debt any longer, the colleges say, well, what do you mean? Well, what do you mean you're not backstopping that debt any longer? A student, a potential student has got to go to a normal lending institution. Well, they're not going to prove the debt. we got to go down on price. we got to make our, our, our university a more affordable proposition. It's got to be a value proposition. That's the correction that needs to happen. Is education today in America three times as good as it was 20 years ago? Because it's costing about three times as much as it was 20 years ago. Of course not. It's probably inferior. Anything the government touches, anything the government meddles in, the quality always goes down and the expense always goes up. Take a break. Back in a minute. At first she's gonna come on strong Like she'll love you all night long Like it's going out of style Then she'll leave you with a smile You're gonna give her all your heart Then she'll tear you said that guy you used to be <laughs> that sucks <laughs> ouch that really does she found her a new cowboy that guy you used to be um eight four three six six one oh nine three seven so we've made uh we made a suggestion we didn't have a lot of feedback had a little bit off the air um about whether or not to take the last hour of the week not the last hour of the day the last hour of the week and then begin to kind of decompress but begin the um i mean politics is stressful I mean, it creates anxiety. That's why a lot of people don't follow it. I mean, my, my wife's got a kind of a famous saying about politics, the Taylor Swift song, why you got to be so mean? And I just don't want to be in that world. I mean, it seems like that world is meaner and more vitriolic and nasty and cutthroat. And I just don't want to be a part of that. You know, just count me out. I mean, that's what she'd always say. Count me out of that. Well, why do people have to be so vicious toward one another? Um, it's a blood sport. I mean, it is. There's a lot at stake. 
and and it ain't for everybody. Um, I got a bent gene. I'll accept that about myself. Uh, not that I enjoy it, but I don't shy away from it. Sometimes I invite it. Uh, I'll be honest. Sometimes I'm willing to say, hey, here's what I believe, and I know I'm in the minority, and I know I'll get attacked because of it, but let's have at it. You know, let's get let's get after it. However, you choose you, to. Would you kind of like it being the uh, the underdog in that scenario? Well, I mean, I've always felt like I was the underdog. I think everybody feels like they're the underdog. I mean, unless you've got such a prominent position of influence and power, I've never had that. Uh, so I've always considered myself to be the underdog, whether I was or not. I've taught myself to be the underdog, uh, even in times when I was not. But um, but it's it's an intense world, especially now. I mean, it's a very hotly contested um emotional sort of um back and forth and it's not for everybody i was actually texting last night with a, rep- a democrat friend of mine who um at the end of the text i mean it was probably 20 minutes long at the end of the text he said hey man i've never questioned your heart i've never questioned your motivation i think your ideas suck and if we implement some of what you want to do i think the country pays a significant price as a result of but i know you believe it and I know you sincerely think that that's what needs to be done. So, so I think, you know, there, there's a mutual respect that people, I think, have for one another, not, not everybody, because a lot of times people are in it for the money. I mean, they're in it to, to convince, say, an argument to go one way or another because there's a financial reward there. I just want the country to do good, man. I mean, I want my share of the pie. You want your share of the pie. Freehold wants his share of the pie. Um, at times, maybe I want a little more than my fair share uh, of the pie. But I want the country. I mean, we've been fortunate enough to grow up and live in the most blessed country in the history of mankind. And I think we have a responsibility to it. I mean, climate change, you talk about, you know, our responsibility to the planet. Okay, I'll accept that. But I ultimately have a responsibility as an American to my country. And I think we're shirking our responsibility by not taking seriously the problems that confront us and how to deal with those problems. Um, And I think we've gotten ourselves at a place now where there's going to be a winner and a loser. You know, I'd love for my Democrat friend and I to sit down and say, hey, man, I'll give you this, give me that. I'll give you a little bit of that. But we're so far apart of one another. Well, I mean, how, it's how so you... fundamentally, we're just diametrically opposed. Not personally. I mean, he's not personally opposed to me. But there's so many people that seem not to share that view about the country. They don't think it's worth preserving, well, I mean, that, right? That, that's the unserious nature of American or the American public. I mean, I, I just think, I don't think Americans are dumb. I think we're very unserious seriousness requires work work means that you take on some of this intense intensity we're talking about it and um and yeah i mean i I just think americans now i'll say it like country boys say it you ready we don't want no trouble i mean we just don't want no trouble man And, and if i declare a path and if i become somewhat of a spokesperson or a leader or an advocate then then i've kind of taken a side and here come the arrows here come the here come the bullets here come the bombs here come the grenades and I didn't sign up for that. I mean, I just didn't. I can't tell you how many p- people have gotten uh, in my world. And I'm talking about they know I'm in politics and still. I mean, I've been in here, uh, what, 20, uh, 20 years or so uh, of kind of being around and in politics. So, I mean, a lot of people think they want a part of it. And I don't know how many times this has happened. Somebody says, hey, man, can I go with you? Yeah. They get the fever. And then they want to get a little deeper into it, a little bit deeper into it. And then they taste their own blood. And they're like, I, I don't want any part of that. You're not going back. No, man, you can have that. I don't want any part of that. I mean, I didn't know that's how it worked. But when you believe something and you're willing to say or express what you believe in and you're willing to battle and fight for it, there, there are going to be attacks. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, 
there's going to be pushback. And I'm cool with the pushback. I mean, I think the pushback is necessary. That's called debate. But I think the attacks have really forced people to say, uh, I turned it to Seinfeld. <laughs> I don't want any part of that. I mean, that's just more than I signed up for. Makes me uncomfortable. Puts me on edge. So we're trying to, for an hour a week, <laughs> allow the decompression to start a little bit earlier uh, than we normally do. It doesn't stop for me because I'll read the Wall Street Journal this afternoon. I'll read the New York Times tomorrow, and I'll get all worked up about <laughs> one thing or another. And I'll make notes to myself, and I'll send Rev a text. I'll send my other Republican and Democrat friends a text. Um, but, but yeah, we, we decided that the, the last hour of the week would be an hour we dedicate to, I don't know, who, the, the Mount Rushmore of Clemson and Carolina football. Isn't that kind of what we talked about talked this about morning? about early this yeah, morning. Yeah, who are the four greatest players ever in Clemson football and the four greatest players ever in South Carolina football? Let's go to the phone. Cocky Mike. Hello, Mike. Hey, guys. What's going on? Hey, Mike. Um, I'm on 995 South. Dave, guess where I'm going? Take a wild guess. Where are you going? <laughs> I'm going to Daytona. Oh, good. Go watch your race tonight and tomorrow and got this nice suite. Ken, would you have ever guessed where I was going? <laughs> Dave, he'll fill you in while I'm laughing at him right okay. now. He will. He's probably over there shaking his head. Um, <laughs> uh, I called to ask you guys, have you seen the trailer for My Son Hunter, the movie that Breitbart paid to have produced? Yeah. <laughs> that is the funniest thing. And as soon as I get back to town and sit down in front of a laptop, I'm going to buy that movie and watch it. Did you ever watch? Um, uh, I know I asked you if you were uh, subscribed to the Daily Wire. Did you ever watch What Is a Woman? Did you see that? Yep, the video. Yeah, I sure did. That was pretty cool. It's amazing what the the off mainstream media people are producing these movies because Hollywood never would. So um, I thought I'd brought, bring that up, and now you're talking about Gamecock football. So that's another story. All in so who's the four greatest ever, Mike? You're a big Gamecock. Who's, who are the four? I'm going to ask you on the fly. Who's the four greatest Gamecock football players ever? Obviously, obviously um, George, I would have to say Connor Shaw was one of my favorite all time, whether you say he's the best or not. He's um, Marcus Lattimore had a great career that was cut short but because of the person and the man he was uh i would say he's in those three and the fourth one would be um uh, you caught me by surprise sterling sharp i'd have to think about it um I, you would have to say sterling sharp but we had a defensive player whose name i can't pull Clowney? out Clowney? that went jadavian oh jadavian obviously absolutely has to be on the top four we, but we you know, had a um, – God, who was that guy? Went on to make over $100 million in NFL. Um, that gummit. Stephon Gilmore? My hairs are sticking out. No, not Stephon. He's, he's top – oh, God, you're coming up with all kinds of names now. I'm getting the fever. I'm getting the I'm fever, <laughs> man. I mean, you are too. I mean, we're all getting the fever here. I know. And I can't – oh, have you seen that video of the new light system? Yeah. I have. That is awesome. I can't, I can't wait. wait to watch the game with that. So, And the lights and sound system. I had a Clemson fan call me and said, man, we need one of those. And I said, you'll have one next year. <laughs> we finally beat you him at something. Yeah, thank you, Mike. We finally beat him at something. We got lots before they did. Um, and Mike asked if we knew where he was going south of 995. I almost said Disney World, but I knew better. So. Yeah, he's going to Daytona. Yeah. Mike and I talked a little bit this week. He had something kind of fall out of the sky. 
so to speak. And um, he knows how big a race fan I am. So he sent me a picture of this um, this suite that fell out of the sky. And I'm a little bit envious about not being able to be in, uh, in Daytona. Nice. I'm a big race fan. You know that. Um, Dale Earnhardt Jr. is my favorite podcaster. I love to, to listen to some of the uh, – he had a podcast yesterday about um, – here I am. With, well, we're not talking sport. I mean, we're not talking about politics, yeah. so who cares? Um, jump in here, Gamecock and Tiger fans, or race fans for that matter. But Dale Earnhardt Jr. yesterday broke down, from a driver's perspective, the Kyle Larson-Chase Elliott events of uh, Watkins Glen. And he said he understands 100% what Kyle did, and he understands 100% what Chase did. He said, I mean, I know that's weird. You can't have it both ways. But as a driver, I understand why Kyle did what he did. And I understand why Chase reacted the way he did. Um, There is no right or wrong in that. Now, he did say this. Drivers tend to have long memories. And the easiest thing in the world for a fellow driver to do is wreck you. I mean, these guys are really good at controlling a race car. So it ain't hard if they want to take your, your wheels out from under you and kind of put you in the wall. So we'll see how that plays out. It's kind of interesting. I told Rev during the break. To me, the Hendrick Motorsports secret has been, who's the number one driver on the team? Was it Jimmy Johnson or Jeff Gordon? I mean, it, it was obviously Gordon for a while, and then it became Johnson. But in that interim, you remember back and forth? I mean, they get mad with one another. I mean, there, there was I mean, they had these... um these audios in the car and Gordon would get mad at Johnson and Johnson would get mad at George Gordon. I think Hendrick loved that because you got two elite talents competing at the highest level against one another. And if they whip one another, they're going to whip everybody else. So now you've got that with Larson and Chase Elliott. I mean, they're probably, I don't say they're the best drivers in the garage. They're two of the better drivers in the garage, two of the better teams in the garage, their teammates. And you kind of got them competing with one another about who gets to be one and who gets to be uh, two. So yeah, I, I think that's Hendrick's, kind of master strategy let's 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 um let's let these guys compete i'm not going to say hey you're my number one starter you're number right. two starter let's let them figure it out and this past weekend larson well, got the best Larson's of elliott. trying to be number one well i mean he got the best of elliott this past weekend we'll see what happens in daytona darlington uh the subsequent week it's just kind of a um labor day is the it, i mean it, it begins my favorite time of the year the weather begins changing a little bit from the hot, humid dog days of summer. You'll have some breaks here. Um, football, college football is my favorite sport. And Freehold, I hadn't said this to you, but um, college football is proof there's a God in heaven because man could not have invented a sport that perfect. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, is the, um, it is the illustration of perfection as far as sports um, goes. So you got that, you got Darlington, and you got this long run of college football from now to the end of the year. You got Thanksgiving and family and friends and fellowship. And then you've got Christmas. You know, it's just it's kind of a oh, cool yeah. time of the year sure for is. me. Um, and then you get to January and February. That's a different story. <laughs> That's when I put myself on financial restriction for being stupid in December. I do have some information for Braves fans. So it was officially announced that the Braves World Series trophy in their trophy tour is coming to Darlington race week. And that was something the Braves actually sure. re- reached out to us uh, several months ago as a, a radio affiliate. You made the recommendation. Well, we saw that, of course, it was race week. Let's give you the credit okay. where credit's due. All I mean, right. So, you know. so we connected the Braves. You made the recommendation. Uh, we okay. did. Yeah. The only reason the trophy's in Darlington <laughs> is because that's where Dave Baker wanted okay. the trophy to be. <laughs> well, Continue, sir. Okay, well, if you say so. But we did connect the Braves with the racetrack. 
And I called Kerry Tharp yesterday because I wanted clarification so we could tell people, Racetrack's big place, where to go to see the Braves trophy. So it's next Wednesday, the 31st, I think 4 to 8 p.m. is the official time. And he said it's in the infield, so anyone who wants to see the Braves trophy and there's no tickets required or anything like that, uh, you'll drive through gate 39B, go through the infield tunnel, and there's a parking lot to the right to the garage parking, and it's actually in the garage. And there'll be tents there. There's actually the uh, the Southern 500 trophy will be there as well. So it'll be a, a nice thing for Braves fans and race fans. As someone who has been on the infield at Darlington, get that trophy out of there before su- Sunday. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It gets a bit rowdy on the infield it, at Darlington. It's just going to be there Wednesday. On Labor Day. Well, that, they'll yeah. be fine. Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll be fine. I just don't want anything to happen to the trophy in Darlington, South Carolina. And if it's there on the day of the race... There, there's some, there's some um, liquid influence that happens on that infield that could have an adverse effect on the safety and well-being of that Braves World Championship trophy. Let's go to the phone. Barry and Sherall. Hey, Barry. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, Barry. Uh, hey, I'm going to go with uh, Connor Shaw. Okay. Lattimore. George Rogers. Sterling Sharp. To me, Sterling Sharp's the greatest player to ever walk at South Carolina. I agree with you. I've said that. Um, should be in the Hall of Fame. Better than Tim Brown. Should have won the Heisman. Um, let's just think back. His career does not get sidelined because of his neck injury. He 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 is probably top three greatest wide receiver in the history of the NFL. You disagree? No, he was a really good one. I mean, he, he got hurt with his neck, and I mean, it was a career-ending injury. At the time he got hurt, he was the best wide receiver in football. Absolutely. I mean, he was the Rice was on the back end of his career. And, and Sterling had kind of replaced him as the premier receiver in all the football, and he had a guy named Brett Favre throwing it to him. Absolutely. And if you go back and just watch him, he was before his time as, as far as route running and what he could do with the ball in his hands. He, he was so electric that the 360 spins in full stride was like, and I was five, and I still, there's not a lot of things you remember when you're five, but Sitting in williams Bryce when you're five years old watching Sterling Sharp, I remember it like it was yesterday. So, Sterling Sharp, greatest, will always be the greatest. I don't care who comes. He's the greatest of all time. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate that. 843-661. Don't make me pick the best four, Clemson. <laughs> Some Tiger fan out there needs to do this. I don't need to be the one to pick the four best players ever at Clemson. Back in a minute. Okay, I'm thinking about my days as a Gamecock fan because I grew up losing to Clemson. I mean, other than the Spurrier years, it ain't been a lot of fun playing Clemson in football. I'm thinking about William Perry, a dominant player. I mean, I'll go back further than that. Jerry Butler, um, uh, Steve Fuller. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, Perry was kind of the first. Jeff Davis would have been another player. Perry Tuttle was a really good player. Um, Butler broke my heart in Williams Bryce as a young, young person back in the late 70s. Homer Jordan was a quarterback that won a national championship. Uh, obviously, Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. C.J. Spiller what would be a, a, somebody to consider. Some of those wide receivers they've had recently that have done real well in the NFL. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess Clemson fans have tuned us out because we talk too much <laughs> about the Gamecocks. But um, that's kind of an interesting – maybe we carry this on – uh, through next week because next Friday will be college football eve oh, yeah. Friday. So uh, maybe we kind of um, celebrate Gamecock and Tiger football then. Hey, time for our trivia. Pepsi to Florence has been kind enough to sponsor this nonsense on Mondays and Fridays uh, via a trivia uh, contest. 
that we kind of make up as we go. I told Rev, I said, I got to get a trivia question. Um, here's the question. In the spirit of um, in the spirit of college football, as we're talking, 843-661-0937, uh, winner gets a six-pack of Pepsi product, and it takes Monday, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's um, T-shirt. Next Friday, we've got some Darlington race tickets that we'll give away. Next Friday. This Friday, you get the two T-shirts and the six-pack of Pepsi product. If you tell me the Clemson Tiger that was drafted number one overall, the Gamecocks have had two. I mean, Clemson's beat South Carolina a lot more in the game. George Rogers and Jadavion Clowney. The Tigers have had one player drafted number one overall. They've had an abundance of first-round draft choices. Many, many, many first-round draft choices. They've had one player drafted number one overall. First pick in the draft. Clemson Tigers. Who is that? 843 661 0937. Hi, you are on. You know the answer? Trevor Lawrence. You're right. Who is this and where are you calling from? Jimmy Moore in Lada, South Carolina. Thank you, Jimmy. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate you calling. Trevor Lawrence was the first pick in the draft. I read somewhere Lawrence and, and Clowney had a little bit in common because I've read from some of the um, scouts and, and player personnel, Lawrence would have been a first-round draft choice as a freshman. Clowney would have been a first-round draft choice out of high school. Maybe not the first pick in the draft, but they were so advanced. One a defensive lineman, the other a quarterback. They were kind of prodigies in a weird way. I mean, Lawrence was always better than anybody, um, and Clowney was obviously kind of a freakish sort of um, athlete. Play him up, play him standing up, or hand on the ground. Anyway, that's kind of football talk there. But um, yeah, Trevor Lawrence was the first overall pick. I'm worried that he's going to get trapped in Jacksonville. I mean, they got rid of Urban Meyer, and they'll see a chance to see a skill set flourish. But I'm telling you, man, Urban Meyer, as an NFL coach, was not, not taking good. advantage of that kid's talent because he's got a lot of it. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk Monday.